Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America. We live in Israel. And we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode, we'll host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings in podcast land. How you guys doing? What's going on, Benny? I'm all right, Dan. How you doing? Well, we're here in the studio in Rehovot. And we've been having a, uh, a great week. We had a wonderful, wonderful uh, live event last week uh, with uh, the uh, Jewish Federation, uh, sorry, the Jewish Agency's Western Galilee Partnership. Uh, 16 communities around the world all tuned in live to meet uh, our Emirati friends, uh, personal friends that we've made uh, that I actually got to meet on my trip. It was an incredible show. It was an incredible show, and it was a lot of fun to put it together. And yeah. It was a lot of fun to talk to them and to actually understand exactly how excited they are to uh, to really, you know, fully realize the potential of these new Abraham Accords. And uh, it's nice being in Israel and to finally feel like there's like some people that are actually enjoying a warm peace with us. So, <laughs> yeah. as people out there told me, and I was there, it's like you got to understand, meeting an Israeli is like you're like an alien to us. So this was this yeah. was like a new new thing for them too. I think we should go over there and do a meet the Israelis episode. Uh, we probably should. <laughs> They're going to pay for my ticket, right? That's right. That's All right, right. Good times. So, uh, you know what else I'm excited about this week? Well, I was just going to say, before you're excited for you, whatever you're excited about, I was at CrossFit this morning. They <laughs> they, they closed down our gym. We we worked out this morning outdoors in a park. And, and uh, how just, was it? There was a hill that kicked my ass, but <laughs> I'm, no, whatever. That's my inner bitch talking. We, we got to get you in shape, man. No, but uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, weights and working out, so... I, you remember when we were kids, uh, or not even kids, when we were living in the States and like two in the morning and you turn on ESPN like 16 and there's, you know, large Swedish men pulling trucks and lifting up tires and things like that. You, you remember that? Uh, I do remember that. Okay. So it's called like the Magnus Magnus. Exactly. Like, like 50 guys named Magnus yeah. pulling trucks. Okay. So it's called the sport of strongman. And I'm probably one of the biggest geeks in the world for the sport of strongman. And, and, and like the cartoon show. And this week was the strongest man in the world strongest man the, the finals the championships super exciting they don't live stream it i was really upset but i was like following the results online all week and we had a we had an upset a major upset spoiler alert for all of those strongman fans out there because i know there's so many of us we just lost all of our listeners <laughs> <laughs> so we had a ukrainian rookie first time in the finals named Alexei Novikov, uh, upset literally everyone in the entire field and won the world's strongest man. Just to give you an idea of one of the things he did, there was a, a partial deadlift. You learned deadlifts last week. Yeah, Remember yeah. I taught you how to deadlift? Mm -hmm. so this is a partial deadlift, a little higher off the ground. Guy picked up 1,200 pounds off the floor. Holy shit. Holy shit. Picked up 1,200. And then another place he had to put 1,000 pounds on his shoulders and run 30 feet. That's crazy. That's crazy. It's totally so, crazy. Uh, I, I was excited about that this week, but 
All right, if, you're like a total geek when it comes to these strongman stuff. I'm judging from 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 the look on our guest face. He's like <laughs> Magnus, what? <laughs> so I don't know. Before we start with the episode, quick quick announcement. Uh, you know, I do all the UAE stuff. Uh, we had the event last week. Tomorrow, for all of uh, those uh, listening, uh, UAE Israel Business Council is going to be uh, hosting a webinar for those who are interested in doing business in the UAE. Uh, you can register. Go to our Twitter feed. Go to our LinkedIn page, UAE Israel Business Council. And uh, and you can register for this uh, webinar and uh, learn how to do business in the UAE. Get some insights from some of our founding members. Should be a cool event. Um, awesome. So, yeah. And uh, I think we should uh, start with the episode. All right. So before we get into the episode real quickly, as everybody out there knows, Juwans is a listener supported podcast. Uh, and as you also know, we've attracted lots of interest from people around the world. I think in uh, six of the seven continents, except for Antarctica. And uh, we'd like that to continue. So maybe it's a good time for uh, for you to consider becoming a sponsor today. You know, you can uh, you can make a one time donation on PayPal. You can become a regular donor on Patreon. Uh, you can have your business or organization sponsor us. And we'll put your logo on our website. We'll talk about it. you. We'll plug it. It's all good times. Uh, so uh, and the, if you become a regular monthly sponsor, we do promise some cool Jew on swag. There's some the swag in, in the new future. So it's uh, coffee mugs. Be sure to check us out. Uh, for more information, visit us at www.juanced.com. And without further ado, yeah, so what do we have today? We're going to introduce our guest right now. Our guest is Ray Holcomb, President and Managing Director of First Watch Global. And uh, to, you know, to, to, uh, to make it real easy, Ray has over 30 years of experience in law enforcement and special uh, an intelligence officer. Uh, he served for 23 years as an FBI special agent, eight as, as a strategic planner, with the National Counterterrorism Center, and four as a state homeland security advisor. Uh, essentially, uh, so he knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking, he's about, talking about, and he about seems like counterterror national security. And he seems like a guy you don't want to mess with. And and you know what? That was like <laughs> that was like the the tip of the iceberg of his bio. And if I were going to read the whole bio, we'd be here for the entire episode reading this guy's bio. Um, he's he's an amazing guy. He's a, a, a good close friend of uh, of my family, and we're honored to have him here today. So you have a uh, really long uh, background career in uh, national security and the FBI and intelligence, counterterror. Um, take us back. Uh, when did you start? Um, why did you start? And what was kind of like your first, uh, your first uh, job uh, in, in the national security world? Sure. Okay. So I grew up in the, um, I grew up in the 60s. And one of the biggest shows on TV was the FBI story with Ephraim. Zimbalist Jr. He was driving around in a really hot government-issued Mustang convertible. He always had a great tan and he always had great suits. So as a, as a young guy, uh, and I'm sure I wasn't alone, and as a young guy, I was very impressed with that. So during the Vietnam War, I was in high school and graduated college around 72, 73, uh, somehow I was accepted into law school. I was married and I had one child, one child born the first year in law school and uh, got through law school. And the whole time I really hated it. I hated law school. Where in law school? I was in Seton Hall University Law School, Newark, New Jersey. And I hated it. I said, this is not for me. I don't want to be a lawyer, but I knew that law school would give me an edge in uh, in my application to the FBI. So I stuck with it. I graduated law school. I tried 
to be a lawyer. I tried to be uh, the best lawyer I could be, but I still hated it. So I applied to the FBI and it took about three years to get accepted. So I actually joined the FBI a little bit late in life. I was 33, pushing 34 when I finally was accepted. I think to some degree it helped me though. I had, uh, I had less stars in my eyes. I knew what the world was like. I was very appreciative of finally getting the job that I really, really wanted and just a little bit more mature all around. So at the age of 33, going on 34, I joined the FBI. Early 80s, Cold War's going on. America's sure. in a whole different place. You're probably yep. like, it's starting to be like 80s. It's like, you know, Miami, cocaine, you know, yep. that thing, Escobar. We, we yeah. haven't Al-Qaeda yet. Um, so what, what at that time, you know, um, from the point of view of the FBI, what, what are you focusing on? What are the threats? Who's the enemy at that time? Yeah. Okay. Good question. There were a number of threats. There were, there were, uh, there was a lot of domestic terrorism. Um, you had the organizations like the black liberation army, the Symbionese liberation army, the FLN, which is a Puerto Rican terrorist group. You had, um, a lot of organizations that were many of them, I think were being backed by, uh, the Soviet union and you had, a good deal of espionage taking place uh, domestically around the world. You had, you had valuable government secrets being stolen uh, or being um, shared with the, with the Soviet union and the Eastern Bloc countries, a lot of spying going on, spying going on everywhere. National spying, like countries who are operating spies. Yes. Yes. You know, the West was trying to spy on the East and uh, the Eastern Bloc and the Eastern Bloc was aggressively spying on the West. Not only that, but they were supporting regime change all over the place. Um, They were the Eastern Bloc was supporting violent regime change um, throughout the third world, particularly in the Middle East, which I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with. Yeah. So on top of that, yes, it was the it was the beginning of the cocaine cowboys and the you know the cocaine flooding into Florida from Colombia and Central America, and at the same time, almost simultaneously, uh, the Golden Triangle, which is in Southeast Asia, it's like the Golden Triangle of heroin. Yeah, the heroin started to flood in through a lot of it through Canada. Uh, a lot of it through the old uh, Commonwealth system, even though Hong Kong was no longer part of the Commonwealth, there were s- still certain trade advantages uh, to bring things from Hong Kong to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we saw a dramatic increase in the amount of heroin on the streets, uh, particularly in New York. I started my, my career in uh, Georgia. I spent three years in Georgia with the FBI. And then I got transferred to New York city. Um, that would have been a really dramatic change for anyone. However, I grew up in Northern New Jersey, almost beneath the skyline of New York city. So I was familiar with the city. So I was transferred. From, go ahead. You, you were familiar with New York. So it wasn't a big shock for you. Yeah. To, is it common in the FBI, by the way, to uh, jump around from city to city, position to position? Well, it was back. It was back then. It was more. It was run more like a paramilitary organization, where you could be guaranteed two, three, maybe four transfers during your career. I think it's a little bit different now. I think it's a little bit kinder and gentler. 
with his personnel. But back then, they told you right from the beginning, they said, your first two years, you'll spend about two years in your first office and sort of get your feet wet and learn how it works. And then you're going to get transferred to what they call the top 12 office, the top 12. They were really the biggest offices. Could be L.A., could be Miami, could be New York, Washington field office. And the key there, guys, was that at that time, this was before the U.S. government was offering or giving a cost of living adjustment to employees who were transferred. So if you were making a GS a GS 10 salary, which is very modest, if you're making a GS 10 salary and doing okay in, let's say, Butte, Montana, and you suddenly got orders to New York City, you couldn't survive. You're like a poor man. So it was, yeah, a poor man. You could... There were guys, there were agents, and I say guys only because at that time there were very few female agents. There were some, but they're mostly men that would commute to Manhattan every single day from eastern Pennsylvania because they couldn't buy or afford a home in New Jersey or Connecticut or Westchester County. So every single day they would drive two and a half, sometimes three, three hours. What time? What and what time do you have to report to work? That's insane. Uh, no, I got up every morning. I was in Central New Jersey. I would get up every morning four thirty, be on the road by five ten, and if I didn't hit the Holland Tunnel by six o'clock, I was in trouble. Oh. If I hit the if I hit the Holland Tunnel anytime after six, I could lose another forty five minutes to an hour waiting at the tunnel. And that was routine. That was normal. I tried to take the train, but nobody could afford the train. Uh, you couldn't afford the train, not on uh, uh, a pre-cost of living adjustment salary. While I was there, they finally did pass a cost of living adjustment. In New York, we received, I think it was a, a 22%, maybe 25% increase in our salary, which helped, but certainly nobody was, nobody's living large. Nobody was. I mean, I'm just thinking of it from like a strategic perspective it, it seems like it's a weak yeah. okay on the part of the fbi because you have at that stage agents who are you know, very underpaid did did, did yep. little organizations take advantage of that to try or, to, to or try to flip Russian, agents or russians it, or yeah who was that spy say look we FBI know you're poor Ames? they don't take care of you let's uh very good questions you might have read my book did you guys read my book i did not read I your was, book I, I would love to uh, those are good questions yeah this is what happened um Agents began, particularly the ones who were transferred to offices like New York or L.A., they began to quit in droves. And um, some of the other government agencies scooped them up. Uh, I know that DEA and Customs were grabbing uh, a bunch of agents that were leaving, uh, you know, and giving them giving them jobs in, in more uh, low cost areas. Uh, but it was when I was in New York, there was a there was a point in time where we were losing five or six, five or six agents a month were quitting. Uh, bear in mind. Yeah. Bear in mind. These guys were the, the U.S. invested a lot of training in these people, sure. a lot of training. And um, but they were quitting in droves. And we did have um, agents that went rogue, that went bad and ended up spying on the U.S. Wow. Um, Oh, yeah. Um, there's a movie made on one guy. I worked with two of them in New York City. And the um, it's called Breach. If you ever get a chance to watch the movie, he was, um, name will come to me in a minute. 
I'm going to go, uh, he, go ahead. And yeah, I worked, I worked literally six feet away from the guy. And we worked in these big uh, bullpen areas and everybody sat around a big table. So there was no privacy, but um, he was, here's the ironic, the irony to this story. Okay. Cause he was one of those first agents. He was a deep Eric, thinking kind of. No, no Robert Hansen. Oh, Robert Hansen. Robert Hansen. Robert Robert Hansen. Hansen. Thank you. Yeah. So this is a great story. If you want to hear it, uh, Robert Hansen, we used to, we, we nicknamed him Lurch because he had this very strange way about him. He didn't talk. He had this frown on his face all the time. He didn't socialize. And he just kind of always acted as if he was um, uh, paranoid. So, yeah, yeah. It turns out, here's the, real, here's the real kicker to this. So Hansen, because he was one of the first in the Bureau to really understand the Internet and computers and the technology that was, was coming out, um, he lobbied for and was eventually given the job of coordinating all of the informant databases for the FBI field offices nationally and worldwide. So, yeah, what that means is that every source, every informant we had was going from the, at that time we had 56 field offices and we would hold that information, highly sensitive information inside field office. Well, somebody down in Washington decided it should all be brought to one place and it should all be in headquarters. And they decided, oh, these these new things called computers, what a great place to collect all this data. So Hansen lobbied for the job. And because he was he was pretty uh, brilliant in that area, he got it. Little did anyone know at the time he was lobbying for the job, he was working for the Russians. Oh. So, yeah, talk about putting the fox in the hen house, right? Was he at this time also grossly underpaid? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so but, I, but, uh, I have to ask. It's, it's just I'm thinking I'm looking you know, at this story and I'm not at all in this system. And I didn't read your book and I will, but I didn't read your book. <laughs> the first thing that I thought about was yeah. okay underpaid people in highly sensitive national security type right. positions is a clear right. window for corruption and yep. essentially just you know i don't know how else to call it just like fuckery you know like it's, yeah. it's going to be nobody thought hey maybe we should pay these guys a little bit more they'll be loyal <laughs> well I'll, I'll put it in perspective when i when i got transferred to new york in the in the mid 80s my salary at the time was $29,000. Um, imagine, I mean, imagine trying to buy a home for your family in Northern New Jersey on an income of $29,000 in the 1980s. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. But here's the interesting part. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there were only three FBI agents who turned only three, Hanson being one of them, Pitts was another, and there was a there was a guy out on the West Coast, real buffoon. He didn't have access to much information, and um, he was he fell for a honeypot. You know what a honeypot is? Yeah, I do. do you? Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, Chinese. 
So he fell for that and he gave up some information, nothing terribly sensitive. So to the best of my knowledge, there were only three agents that turned under all those circumstances, trying circumstances. But here's the thing I've often said. I think this is fascinating. When, when I was in the New York office, they they had clerks and secretaries and junior administrators. And all these were local by and large, they were women, young women hired locally in the five boroughs and making maybe half of what I just told you I was making mm-hmm. with families commuting every day to Brooklyn, you know, with children at home. And we used to, and, and we had a position called the rotor, rotor clerk and the rotor clerk handled all of the hard files on our informants. And I oftentimes I would say, to one of my, my associates, I'd say, look at the information these people have at their fingertips. What is keeping them from photocopying a whole file and just walking up to the Soviet mission and selling it? Yeah. Yeah. And what did they say? And they'd all shake their head in agreement. Not once ever did any one of those people do that. Not once. Do you think, uh, looking back now, how many cases, you said three cases that that you know of. I mean, how many cases there might have been that just never got caught? Do you think it's possible? Um, It's possible, but it's possible, but I doubt it. And here's why why I say that. With the fall of the Iron Curtain, we had our own moles inside Eastern Europe. And when the Iron Curtain came down, we got access to a whole ton of stuff, a whole ton of information they had. And um, a lot of Russians, a lot of East Germans, a lot of Czechs and Hungarians all wanted to come over to us and be our friends. So we got to see pretty much most of what they had on us. So if there had been other individuals uh, in the FBI, I think we would have found out. I think we would have. Now, there was a guy named Herman Block, uh, B-L-O-C-H. I think he was deputy ambassador for the U.S. to Austria. I'll tie Herman Block back into the the case, you know, the case we just discussed. Um, Herman Block was... Uh, suspected of spying. I, I don't know who began to look at him. I don't, could have been the CIA, could have been any one of those organizations, but they suspected Herman Block of spying for uh, the Eastern Bloc. And that's not a pun on words. Spying for the Soviet Union, maybe for East Germany. So they were curious because he was taking unauthorized trips to Paris, I believe. Uh, never getting them approved. Nobody, they found out, uh, somehow they found out that he was going to Paris routinely. And then they found out that he was meeting with some suspected intelligence officers in Paris from the Eastern Bloc. So the U.S. and and, um, some of our Western allies, we had a, what I'd call full court press on him. We're watching him intensely, intensely. Um, And he was scheduled to make another trip to Paris. And we were, we had information that he was going to meet with his handler, uh, a Russian 
in Paris and turn over some more information. And prior to the trip, we were poised to pick him up. We were poised to arrest him. Prior to the trip, he suddenly canceled it Hmm. and stayed in Vienna. Uh, Well, we found out, you know, after... uh, after the truth came out that we had a mole inside the FBI that was feeding the Russians all that information, that he had tipped off the Russians that were looking at Block. And also, uh, to the best we could determine, at least maybe 16 or more of our um, top echelon informants around the world were grabbed and, and executed by the Russians or their allies. So because of what he did, a lot of people died. Um, Unbelievable. Where is he now? Yeah. He's been in three life terms in Supermax out in Colorado. He's still in jail. He didn't know. Oh, yeah. Him. No, he didn't. He wasn't. He, no, he did. They didn't execute him. No. Yeah. I don't think he was. He might've cooperated to some degree. But I guess somebody in the prosecutor's office felt, well, you know what? It's better for him to live with himself in uh, solitary confinement, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for the rest of his life, and uh, which is worse. I don't know. Doing uh, counter espionage. I mean, that's part of the FBI's job is to, is the counter espionage branch, right? Yeah. Yes, it is. What, what does yeah. that mean? I mean, wow, I can imagine, especially in the Cold War. Yeah. Can you give us like an idea of what the life of, of a counter espionage unit or a counter espionage agent, you know, how do you go about doing that? What are you looking for? Um, you know, what, yeah. what, take us into that a little bit. Well, the key, the key always was, um, and this is common knowledge. I'm not giving up any sensitive information here is you develop we won't tell informants. <laughs> okay. Keep it, keep this a secret between us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But it, but it's a good point. I mean, it's it's first of all the a good a good counterintelligence agent is um, different than your typical um, criminal agent. A uh, good counterintelligence agent is how do I put this? Probably someone who's very very smart about the enemy, the adversary, mm-hmm. educated in that regard. You know, inclined to work that field. Because at some point in your career, you give, you're given an option. Do you want to go after bank robbers? Do you want to go after drug traffickers? Do you want to work cases against spies, counterintelligence? And you can make that choice. So eventually, the real veterans are there by choice. And they have an inclination, a fascination, a proclivity toward working that kind of thing. And in my case, I found that many of the guys and some gals I worked with were uh, either their parents were from Eastern Europe um, or they had uh, an interest in the politics of it all or the interest in modern history, an interest in that kind of thing, you know? So they were kind of a unique, because it's not, it's not a really action packed not a really action-packed job. It's a lot of cerebral work. It's a lot of developing relationships. Sorry? You're not chasing people through alleyways, is what I'm saying. Sometimes you are. 
but most of the time you're trying to develop sources, not, not necessarily informants, but sources in key positions who can feed you information that helps you build your case. Um, you know, it may be, it may be a guy who's, you know, working downtown Manhattan at a um, electronics store who's selling a lot of video, uh, you know, a lot of video equipment to the uh, Russian community. Wow. You know, they were you know, great shoppers. They love to shop for a bargain. So the kind of information that individual can, can you help you with is, is, is immense. He can tell you who's shopping there, who's spending most of the money, um, you know, things, things of that nature. So, so you try to develop sources that surround, um, you know, that surround the community, um, the diplomatic community, let's say, because you have two kinds of spies, the ones that are working under official cover, you know, they're pretending to be cultural. Uh, another, yeah. Cultural attache. Thank you. Or, or they're just not undercover. They're just either, either they've been planted here sometime in the past. Um, maybe they've been recruited. They're an American citizen who's been recruited along the way. Um, you know, but they're not here and they're not working for the Eastern Bloc under any official capacity. So you, there's, those are the ones that are very hard to spot. Um, every once in a while, you'll get a, and if we got the time, I tell you this story, this is a great story. Every once in a while, you'll get an individual who wants to come over. Let's say you've got a, a Russian diplomat or a Russian uh, military officer who said, I've had enough of it. Uh, I want to come to the West. I want to come to America. We had... It, and again, this is in the book. We had love, love this story. My my friend's father was an old an old time Hoover FBI agent. Guy wore the fedora, bull, <laughs> bulldog looking face. Um, you know, uh, arch arch anti anti communist, uh, uh, true patriot all the way. And um, he was assigned a case. He was a, his case was to go after the code clerk at the Polish uh, consulate in Manhattan. Okay, the code clerk is the guy who handles all the crypto for the communication system. So his job was to learn everything he could about the Polish code clerk. The guy's name was Jules, the agent. The agent's name was Jules. He was an old football player, went to Georgetown University and old thick neck guy. And what he would do every single morning, he would go uptown. He would buy, a, you know, a buttered hard roll and get a cup of coffee. And he would stand on the corner and he would watch the Polish code clerk leave, uh, leave his, leave his apartment with his child, walk his child to a private school that the, uh, their consulate had. And then from there, walk down the street, to the consulate, the Polish consulate. Every single day, rain, rain or shine, he was out there. Snow, sleet, Jules was out there on the corner with his coffee and his hard roll. So eventually, after weeks and weeks, maybe months and months of doing this, they started to nod to each other. And the code clerk would look over and nod, and Jules would nod back. That was the extent of their engagement totally extended their engagement. 
So one day, this is after months, Jules is standing there and the code clerk drops off his child at the school and proceeds across the street and walks straight up to Jules. Now, again, I, I think I mentioned this, the code clerk is probably the most important individual in any embassy or consulate. He's got the crypto, he's got the codes to everything. Sure. So this guy walks up to Jules and in broken English says, I want a defect. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And he knew exactly who he was talking to. Oh, yeah. Well, after after three months of looking at Jules with the fedora on and nodding to each <laughs> other, he, he knew exactly who Jules was. So Jules almost dropped his coffee all over himself. Uh, it's a famous, famous story. And he said, um, he thought as quick as he could. And he said, uh, meet me in Macy's lingerie department at noontime. So, <laughs> yeah, they nod to each other and they go their separate ways. Jules goes down to the office and tells his boss and the alarms go off all the way down to Washington, D.C. I mean, it is like, you know, everybody's hair is on fire. This is huge. This is really, really huge. So the boss gets orders from Hoover, direct orders from Hoover in Washington, D.C., and he accompanies Jules to the meeting. So at noontime, they go back up to Macy's. They go to the lingerie department. You can imagine how they stood out. And down the hall comes the code clerk with his wife and his three children. Wow. And wow. yeah. And <laughs> they stop him and they take him off to the side as discreetly as they can. He said, look, it doesn't work this way. You can't do it this way. And he's, you know, what do you mean? He said, you have to stay in place and work for us and earn the right to come over. You can't just walk out of your job and become an American. You have to earn the right. Somehow, in the end, they get him to take his family back. Uh, he continues to work. And the reassurance he was given was, Every meeting, they would show him a passbook from a bank in New York showing a deposit of a certain amount of money in that, in that bank account. That's all they had to convince him to put his life on the line. And he did this for a long time. I, I don't know exactly whether he stayed in place and he fed us information for probably for the better part of a year or more. Wow. And wow. As, as a result of Jules standing on the corner in a snowstorm time and time again, drinking his coffee and eating, it's probably one of the biggest uh, intelligence coups in the early part of the, uh, of the Cold War. It was huge because having those codes, not only could you crack the, the, uh, you know, the communications inside uh, the Polish intelligence service, but it helped to crack other other uh, services they were dealing with. Right. That's And so when I said it earlier to you, it took a certain kind of person to work that kind of case. Um, Jules was a, a real good example. Patience and patience and patience. And it paid off. Do you think um, people who work in counterintelligence are naturally suspicious people or does it lead you to become a suspicious person over time? I think that's a great question. You're, you're right on the money. Yes, I think you have to be naturally suspicious. 
You have to be. You can't trust anybody. People who approach you, you know, after a short period of training and being in that work, you don't trust anyone, any stranger who approaches you, you think they're up to no good. Now, the work has changed quite a bit because so much of it now is cyber. You know, the old, um, it used to be based largely on interpersonal relationships and, and having that sixth sense when you meet with somebody. Um, you know, it used to be based a lot on just behavioral analysis and, and having that intuition. Now, I, I would imagine a tremendous amount of it is, is done through analytics, you know, computer analytics and such. It seems like there's almost like, maybe this is just the power of Hollywood and the movies and whatnot, but it seems like it was a much power more of Hollywood. Look at you. Oh, well, no, I'm just saying like, it, it seems like it seems like it was a much more romantic <laughs> job at the time. It seems like now it's like, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it, and look, I'm not saying that there aren't people. Obviously there are people that are doing this type of work on a day-to-day basis and, and hats go off to them, but like the technology wasn't there. It was a much more, right. it, was, it was people. It was, you know, there was, you know, a lot your, more your intuition, a lot you're, more you're talking to people, places, cultivating yeah. sources, being on the on the street, yeah. being a person yeah. like Jules who got up every day to go sit and drink his coffee on the corner and watch some guy go in and out of a building. And I wonder how much of that is lost now and how, you know, it, it seems to be like it's a different agency. The world is a different place. The world's a different place. Do you do you think, yeah. well, first off, do you miss it? Do you miss that? Is, is, is there something nostalgic about the Cold War when you look at today what's going on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, two, two things. First of all, what you just said is, is accurate. I mean, there was a certain, um, I wouldn't call it romance to it, um, not, you know, particularly for the, the gumshoe agent walking the streets of Manhattan. It wasn't romantic at all. You, you, know, you had to voucher just a, a ticket on the subway you had to, to get reimbursed. But probably for those intelligence officers that were international or, you know, with the other organizations, the other three letter organizations, it was probably pretty exciting. I I know it was because I know enough of them and I've heard enough of their stories that it was, you know, it wasn't Casablanca, but it was pretty exciting. And, um, you know, uh, I think today a, a, a lot of it is done at the computer a lot of it is done at the computer and that, that would incorporate all of the tools they have, you know, whether it's, whether it's tracking or listening, all that stuff, it's all comes over the computer. So that is, I don't think as romantic as the old, uh, as the old way of chasing spies um, is probably more effective, more efficient today, but uh, you know, they have facial recognition. Now you can't travel the world anymore. Mm-hmm as a spy without being tracked almost every major airport in the world has facial recognition so you can't put on the old groucho marks nose and the glasses with the mustache (laughs) and and slip through an airport (laughs) not anymore not anymore you second what was the second question you miss it do you miss the simple, oh? Do I miss it? Yeah, I'm absolutely hugely. I I say half jokingly all the time to friends and family. I miss the good old Cold War, and the reason I say that is because the enemy was very clear. You know, it, we knew who was after us, and we we had this clear divide in 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 uh, philosophy 
at least we believed it was a clear divide in philosophy. And as we watched their system slowly come unraveled and more and more defectors confirmed what we believed, we knew we were on the right side of this thing. Um, so yeah, you had, you actually felt you were the good guys and you felt you knew clearly who the bad guys were. Um, so yeah, totally different world. Guys today, I mean, is there an ideology like that? That was a, um, a time in, in history, at least in recent history where there was a clash of worldviews, a clash of ideologies, a clash of economics, right? right? The Soviet Union, United States, capitalism, communism. Um, What do we have today? I mean, I'm I'm assuming there are Chinese spies. I'm assuming there are still Russian spies, but um, Iranian spies. But who's trying to spy on America today? What what is the FBI, you know, as much as you're allowed to tell us, what is an FBI counterterrorist agent today? Who are they looking for? Well, they're looking for they're they're looking for uh, research and development information. I, it, it's in the news all the time. I mean, you you might have seen just a few months back where they arrested a, an American professor at Harvard who was receiving a huge amount of money every month to feed the Chinese information. It's common. They're the I think the Chinese more than anyone. Okay, the Chinese are about stealing research. They're about stealing proprietary information. Why spend a billion dollars on developing a system when you can just steal it from the West? Yeah, it's it's immense what is happening. We call that insider theft. Um, They have students in just about every American university being subsidized by the PRC and those students are there. Their primary mission is send back home every bit of information they can gather up. And if they don't, mom and dad, aunts and uncles, nieces and nephews are going to get a, have a really hard time back in the PRC. So it's no question the biggest. And, and we, we're talking not just about military secrets. We're talking about, you know, private sector developments. Here's an interesting case when when. When, uh, of course, I know this one because I live in the heartland of DuPont, right? DuPont had, this will sound silly, they had the patent on white paint. I guess there's many kinds of white paint, but they had this one white paint that was better than the rest. Well, and it was uh, hugely profitable for DuPont. Hugely. I, I, I couldn't quote your figures, but it was huge. They sold it worldwide. Yeah, white the Chinese, yeah, and the Chinese got the formula. They stole the formula. Within a very short time, they were manufacturing the same white paint over in China, and they put DuPont out of business in the white paint world. Put them out of business at that time, hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, just by stealing the formula. Well, I I mean, I've been to China, and it's, it's incredible how, I mean, you, okay, it's like you went to if, if you were to go to New York in the 90s, you know, you used to have guys that would approach mm-hmm. you in the street like, you know, you want to buy a Rolex, you want to buy a tag, he were watch, you want to buy, and it was all <laughs> fake watches. But it was like, you know, it was a guy with a plastic bag, with a big garbage bag, yeah. like fake Louis Vuitton, whatever. I went to right. China for the first time. It must have been like 2014, 2015. And um, it's like fake cars, 
fake. Uh, <laughs> it's a real car. Yeah. Cars, but it's yeah. like it's exactly the same as a Ford F one fifty pickup truck, but it's something else. Right. But right. it looks exactly, exactly the same. Uh, you know, exactly. uh, copycat Land Rovers, copycat, you know, whatever it is. You know, the the, the concept of theft right. is not uh, you know, it's it, like you just said, Ray, it's it's that's how you get ahead. Why spend all the money on research and development when yeah. you can take a perfectly great product and produce it for less and then sell it to a you know a billion point two million, you know, whatever. So it's like what 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 bothers me, and maybe this is, you know, we can start getting into some some of like the the culture, the politics of this is like it's very transparent to me and anybody that has uh, a little bit of knowledge about like how the Chinese are doing business. For example, what you just said about how students are told go to America, collect information. And if you can't send us back whatever we need from you, something's going to happen to your family or your, you know, friends and yeah. family or whatever it is. Yeah. It seems to me. It's that- very, it, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no I, go, ahead. go ahead. So what happens is it's very well known. It's called the Confucius something or other. It's a, a program that China have sending, sending their, these brilliant young people to universities all over the world, primarily the U S what happens is that most of our universities, um, because it's subsidized by the government, they they can they can charge whatever they want for tuition. So the the Chinese students pay top dollar to attend Stanford, to attend Harvard, wherever it is. So they pay top dollar, um, and I think the universities are more concerned about the revenue than they are about the spying. So my question was going to be, uh, and this probably is true across every uh, every part of American culture right now, and in a greater essence, Western culture, we know what's going on in China. I mean, China's not, you know, this isn't new. What do you think mm-hmm. happened with us that we're just so easily accepting of the way that the Chinese do business? And, you know, whereas in the past, America was, you know, something of a, a, a beacon of, you know, uh, and again, I'm not trying to romanticize this, but it's like, you know, there's some wicked things going on in China um, and we're just like, we're OK with it. You know, the university well, I, I, students in, you know, they pay good money. Yeah. He's OK. with Yeah. That. Well, I think there's a couple a couple things at play here. First of all, well, first, I think Dan, Dan, Dan did say, I mean, are P, do you think that people are OK with it by and large or, or our least, people in America, the average American? I think the average American, and, and this would apply more to the younger generation, couldn't care less. I think that there has been a dramatic sea change in how Americans see themselves. And, and um, if you asked the average 30-year-old, tell me something about the Cold War, they, would, they probably would barely have a clue. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's all, um, a change in attitude. Like we just discussed, we were the good guys. We did save the West. We did bring down the Berlin wall. We did, um, help bring the world to bring a disaster, but at the same time we stopped, I think what would have been inevitable. Um, and yet today, young people don't know anything about it and are not interested in it. So I don't know what the answer is to that. I have no idea. Well, I, um, I young people tend not to be interested in, in things that true. they have personally anyway, but we have another problem that we've discussed multiple times on the show. And that is 
Um, and I almost hate the way it sounds, but it's, I've looked at this, you know, as a scholar, I've looked at this and, it, and it's absolutely true. The infiltration of Marxist ideology, revisionist history, critical theory, which we've talked about, right? Uh, Post-colonialism, right. right. race theory, and uh, the posts, the posts yeah. into Western academia to the point where I, I think today's young educated, and this is the hardest part to say, the educated young Americans today are in a completely different reality than, than mm-hmm. uh, Americans of even half a generation back or a generation back who studied the same kind of things because, mm-hmm. because these ideologies, these Marxist ideologies have just taken over the academia. And so, you know, there's a realization of communism and socialism and uh, a rewriting of, of the entire history of the Cold War and, and, and of all these things. And, or an acceptance of actual communist violence in the form of Antifa. Yeah, we'll yeah. get to Antifa in a second because there's a whole lot to unpack there. I mean, uh, and, and that's just something that is going to take years to do. And I don't even know how America does that because they're so entrenched in the academia. So like the very institutions yep. that are supposed to teach, you know, history and, and uh, uh, the liberal arts are the ones that are that are rewriting, they're promulgating these kind of very problematic ideologies. And I think we're seeing this now. This is what I think we're seeing now in these elections and like in this kind of political time. I couldn't agree with you more. I would love to have a a discussion on just this for however long it takes. My, my passion, you know, as a, in, in college, I was a political science major with a minor in Russian history. Um, for some unusual reason, which I could never figure out. I've always had a fascination with the Bolshevik revolution and what took place before and after that. And it is stepping back a second. I've seen copies of the earlier KGB manual training manual. As I said, when, when the cold war ended, we got access to just about everything over there, including you know, the KGB training manual and the tactics they lay out in that training manual are taking place right now in front of our very eyes. It's happening. And well, it's for someone like me who sees it clearly and was trained in it. It's, it's, it's extremely upsetting. So wait, for, for the benefit of, of many of our listeners who are not so engaged in this topic. And, and I know that there are people that are going to be listening that are going to go like, wait, this is this is going down some sort of a crazy conservative Trumpish sort of a thing. You know, they're just saying this because that's their politics or viewpoints or something like that. It's not our viewpoint. It's not our politics. For, are, for anyone who knows Benny, we are not. I, we're not very ideological. You know, and and that's a lot. But we no, don't talk about our politics very often. We don't. Uh, but no, I get, I get it. it. It just maybe you can explain how. Like, how do we see this come into fruition so it doesn't sound like hyperbole to people that would be ten, you know, prone to think that this is hyperbole? Well, I think you. How do we see this coming to fruition when you say this? What do you like, mean? What are the What are the examples of the tactics? This, this whole that process that we're used? talking about, the KGB manual you see coming to life 20, 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union. Well, what are we yeah. talking? About? Just spell it out for some of our listeners who might not be so far. Well, for for instance, okay, when and I can't quote verbatim off the top of my head, but I, I I can find it. If your enemy, if you identify an enemy who is um, dangerous and he's on to you, okay, and he 
he has a a valid a, a valid um, argument. What you do instantly is you attack that enemy and accuse that enemy of every false thing you can dream up, and you put the enemy on the defensive. You attack, you attack, you attack. That's one of the primary primary things in their manual. And so the great the the strongest indicator that you're you're hitting close to home is when they when they go on the offensive. And that could be that could be propaganda. That could be you know finding out you know posting uh, salacious or unsavory things about you. Whatever it is, when that starts happening, that means you're a danger to their to their effort. If you if you look at um, the Spanish Civil War, now I'm really getting down a rabbit hole. But the Spanish Civil War was really a war between you know fascist Germany and and uh, Stalinist Russia. Everybody else in there was just a pawn. Everybody else was a pawn. You know, you had, you know, Franco was trying to overturn the the Republicans who were far, very socialist, you know, communist leaning. And um, so in the end, Antifa comes in and that's Antifa precedes the Spanish Civil War, but they came into that. They were sort of like the shock troops, you know, that the the anarchists used. Shock, they were like shock troops. They come and they they were very ideological. You know, they were all about you know turning the world on its head. They came from all over the world. Just so for our listeners who might be confused, Antifa in this context, we're talking about the Spanish Civil War, which took place in the 1930s before World War right, II. We're talking about the Weimar Republic in Germany. No, no, mm-hmm. this was already um, this was already Hitler's not, taken over. Hitler is taken over. And uh, Russia yeah. is backing um, is backing the communists in the Spanish Civil War, and uh, Hitler is backing uh, Franco, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes, Hitler and Mussolini and Mussolini, and uh, and the Soviet Union managed to gather up tens of thousands of uh, quote unquote volunteers from all over the world, including from Mexico, who were uh, mm-hmm. anti-fascists. Um, and so, right. we're talking about Antifa in the modern context, we're going to get to that. But we're talking about Antifa right. in the 1930s, actual, literally. Right. And we're not talking about fascism like in a hyperbolic sense of anybody who you no, claim we're, to be. We're talking about, about actual anti-fascist stated fascists. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they were they were under they were closely aligned to the anarchists. The anarchists. There were so many different organizations fighting in that in that war, but they sort of fell under uh, a couple of umbrellas. Um and Antifa, the anarchists, they fell under the, the communist umbrella. Uh, I could give you acronyms to the to the end of the day. But in the end, my point here is that once um, once the communists, um, which were really Stalin's Russia, had secured power in Barcelona and other places, they had no longer any need for these anarchists and these anti anti fascists because they were just they they just delivered chaos. You know, all they did was deliver chaos. So they went about um, methodically removing, uh, executing, assassinating all the leadership. So once they had done what the communists and you know needed them to do, then they took the head off. Um, that's the, that's the style. I'm, I'm not quite sure why I took you down this rabbit hole. It's, but... it's interesting to see, like this is the actual evolution of, 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 of this mm-hmm. movie from mm-hmm. its origins. Mm-hmm. 
in a time mm-hmm. when, when, you know, we're talking about a completely different landscape, completely different cultural landscape, but, but also not so different in that the same tactics aren't going to be effective today. And right. now we're seeing its subsequent rebirth uh, in, in the United States, which, you know, to, to mm-hmm. people like Dan and I who have been away for so long, I've been away for 16 years. I think, Dan, you've been away for 15. It's very, it's very bizarre to me, at least, yeah. this is going on yeah. in the country that, that I grew up in. Um, it right. seems like, I mean, I could just go on and on for, for hours. It's like, how does this, how did this happen? What is going on? And, and, it, and I, I think the thing that bothers me most is that there is a almost deliberate um, blackout on the, on the, on the, on the, uh, on the part of the, the traditional media to even acknowledge that this is what's going on. Um, you know, you have certain, well, I, I don't think they understand what's going on. Right. There's some people who they, probably they just, don't, really understand, don't understand what's going and on. you have others who might be interested to know. Well, hey, let's take, let's take a jump back here. If you don't mind. Sure. Uh, Ray, so, you know, we, we started talking about, uh, we, we jumped into the Spanish civil war and Antifa and, and kind of what the Soviets have been doing, even though the Soviet union doesn't exist anymore, but kind of that ideology mm-hmm. that, that yeah. visionist ideology is still around. Uh, the right. class warfare concept, uh, the whole concept of classes and, and, and you know, Marxism is all based on uh, uh, class conflict. Um, right. let, let's jump to today, okay? And, and I mentioned that it's been building in the, in the academia and so kind of among the educated, you know, people who went to college and studied liberal arts degrees. By the way, people who study science and engineering degrees, we don't see this with them. Uh, we right. see this with people who study liberal arts degrees. So let's jump to today. Um, we just had... Um, you know, as kind of this has been building up for, for over years. And for the first time, at least I'm aware, maybe you as a, a former FBI guy, we hear this thing called Antifa and we see these riots and we see protesters. So first of all, what's going on? What you mentioned Antifa of the 1930s, the original Antifa. What is, mm-hmm. what is Antifa today? Um, and, and for those listeners who might be rolling their eyes and about to turn off this podcast and saying they're going to, we're also going to talk about right-wing extremism uh, later mm-hmm. on in the show. Um, because we do want to get into a discussion about extremist groups and, and eventually how that also affects the Jewish community in the United States. Um, but, but let's start with, with left-wing extremism. Let's start with Antifa. Uh, and then kind of maybe let's tie that into Benny's question about did the media drop the ball on this? Are they even aware? Are they complicit? Do they just not have a clue what's going on? Kind of take us through this, if you, if you don't mind. Okay. Well, again, um, I've been a student of this. I've worked this kind of thing for for many years. So I'm just not, you know, some guy that's got a a strange quirk on on this this subject matter. Antifa, and and I've learned through my sources, and I I worked Antifa when I was, uh, I looked at them when I was at the National Counterterrorism Center. And there were these, these strange, uh, protesters showing up all over the country every time there was a, a like a, a presidential or a, you know a, a party convention like in Denver and other places all of a sudden these black hooded young people would show up in vans and very well prepared to cause trouble I mean obviously trained and prepared to cause trouble and I, I start seeing this occur more and more and more we now know that um, I think the the core staging planning operations center for uh, Antifa North America is outside of Portland, Oregon. 
And um, they are very, very, very well organized. They have the ability to appear near spontaneously if there's an incident such as the Floyd shooting. Uh, Within 24 hours, they show up in mass and they're, they're very organized. They have communication systems, encrypted communication systems. Uh, that they can talk to each other. They have um, they have a playbook. If you ever watch any of those, if if you ever watch those uh, riots, okay, the riots that were taking place in all the cities, you would always see somebody on a bicycle with a radio or a cell phone, and you'd always see this person cruising around an area. Then all of a sudden, the rock throwers would show up. And the people with the Molotov cocktails would show up. And then, you know, the people with the baseball bats would show up. And um, it was very clearly um, these people on the bicycles were scouts. This is all, you know, I mean, this is all stuff that anybody in intelligence knows about. They'd show up and all of a sudden the real agitators would appear and they'd get the mob going. Hold so, on. Hold on a second. You're talking. You're talking. First of all, for those who missed the intro, Ray is not, you know, a guy who watches YouTube videos. OK, um, no, he's not never. a guy who's watching Fox News all day and is raging against liberal conspiracies to unseat America. We're talking about someone who studied this as an FBI agent and is mm-hmm. a counterterrorism expert. Uh, by the when 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 did you start noticing this group? You said you were at the National Counterterrorism Center. When was that? Oh yeah, that was in the early two thousands. So already back in the early two thousands, you're seeing this organized group called Antifa, mm-hmm. showing young people showing up in in black hooded sweatshirts in a very yeah. organized manner, throwing rock, yeah. Molotov cocktails and coming around with baseball bats. Did you have you heard of this until recently? No. I haven't either. Not I heard. I, I probably heard of Antifa for the first time in let's say 2017. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So okay. So this this is nuts. Okay. So they're they're coming out organized in an organized manner, coordinating with each very other. Very well. And, and what are they looking to do? Who? What is their goal? Chaos. Chaos and chaos. To what end? There's a it's a, a political means or to a political end. It's terrorism. You you know you want okay. to talk about a definition. What is their ultimate goal? Are they trying to create a communist state? Are they trying to? They're trying. Okay. They're trying to change America dramatically, whether that means a communist state, maybe whether that means a, 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 a very socialist state. Maybe it even means to ham hamstrung hamstring America in the world. I don't, I'm not sure but there's definitely a plan to dramatically impact our way of life here. This dramatically is- impact it. Who's behind this? Who's funding it? Now you're going to try. I, I, I have some very strong opinions on that, but I don't think we want to go there on the show. Are you going to get it? <laughs> you're going to get a uh, avalanche of, I think I know. You think, you know, now if we get hate mail, Ray, we're just going to send it to you. Well, like- Hey, guys, ask this simple question, okay? Just ask yourself this simple question. Who benefits from turning America inside out and half of the country at the throat of the other half of the country? Who benefits from that? Sure. Russia, China, Iran. It's simple. It's simple. I mean, it's obvious. Evidence in your time to back up these uh, theories? Evidence? Evidence? 
You mean 30, 40 years of Cold War? Yeah. Uh, multiple, multiple spies that came over, uh, you know, multiple intelligence collection efforts that were hugely successful. When the, when the, when the, when the wall came down, the East German Stasi and uh, they all started working and cooperating with us and they shared everything they had. The Romanians, Hungarians, they all shared it with us. So we got a complete look at, uh, you know, the, the, the Iron Curtain intelligence effort for 50, 60 years. We got to look at everything. We saw it all. We saw it all. And, and, and you know, unfortunately, even if we were able to share that with the public, I don't think there's a college or university today that would, would, would do that. This is just so bizarre. This is like one of the biggest scoop stories of our time. It's a serious yep. problem. It's a serious threat to the stability of our cities. Sure. The, the stability mm-hmm. of people's, the fabric of life. And mm-hmm. yet, if you listen to the media, you got half of the media that looks at them like they're like, I don't know. I think there was a, I don't remember who said it. Well, it was I, maybe, keep, I keep saying it's well, unorganized. That's what well, you no, I, from I, media, I was going right? to say something else. Like, I think that there was a time where it, maybe it was Chris Cuomo and CNN or somebody that were just talking about how, no, no, these are heroic people that are fighting racism. They're <laughs> fighting, you know, they're fighting, uh, right, they're fighting right. the evil. They're fighting, they're fighting. Right. For those who are and, listening, Ray's laughing <laughs> visible. Yeah, no, yeah. but for real, like you would think that they're like, you know, uh, let's, let's give them praise. Like they're liberating the beaches of Normandy. It's yeah. or, or the meme, the meme attack, by the way, speaking of memes, I've been reading a lot. Um, I've taken um, kind of an academic of the think tank. I work an academic interest into um, concerted and coordinated uh, efforts, uh, especially, for example, what the Russians are doing with the Internet research mm-hmm. um, to put out coordinated social media campaigns. And you see this in memes to, yep. to further these divides. Uh, about America and you know these kind of things like uh, uh, you know you've seen things like Antifa is is you know they're just punching Nazis whereas you know like the you know the way it's right. so caricaturize like everybody and and you always see this kind of line about uh, you know Antifa are, are kids you know it's it's organic it's this they're they're just going out there to fight against racists and <laughs> you're saying this is completely orchestrated. Oh, yeah, I, I think it is. Well, it's being orchestrated, but there there are a lot of people who are just followers who buy into whatever the message is they're putting out. It, it, I don't know if I can mention a network on your show, but there's something that came out called. Um, you can mention whatever uh, you can say. Whatever. Social social dilemma. Social Dilemma on Netflix. Sure. So it's, it, it's astounding. My wife may be know. turned off because it scared the shit out of her at a certain point. And I said, exactly. No, well, every American should have to watch it. I said, you have to because watch it because you spend hours on that flipping your phone every day, like a zombie. You got to You got to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And these were all, these were young executives that were part of it and they had enough. You know, they saw what was going on and they had enough. So I think there's a lot of validity. You've seen these these trends when you're online, you know, when you walk by a, a certain dis- 
department store and the algorithms figure you out right away and start to bombard you with things. You know, you've seen it. Everybody has. Well, I'm a, you know, uh, no secret here. Maybe you don't know. I'm a former intelligence officer and, and I'm looking now. Really? Yeah. Really? Wow. It's not on my website. <laughs> um, and, and you see the kind of things on uh, that, that are making, I noticed the kind of things that are making people mad on social media, especially in America, especially. Yeah. In America. And I, I am willing to bet money that the memes that are going around are mm-hmm. very much orchestrated. If, if uh, I'm certain Russians, Chinese, I think the Turks are getting into this uh, or, right. or someone looking to cause strife domestically. Um, right. Maybe even the kind of things where, where you had the people toppling, you know, statues of Abraham Lincoln and, and these kind of not yeah. controversial figures. Yeah. You know, this is all meant to cause strife uh, internal. Exactly. Strife. Exactly. And the very fact that, you know, and, and you, you fellows have mentioned this several times, how you're concerned that a lot of your listeners are going to think that we're somehow, uh, you know, conspiracy lunatics. That's the exact that's exactly the the viewpoint they want to encourage in, in, in people when you bring up these topics. They want people immediately knee jerk say, oh, they're kooks, they're kooks. You know, that's not real. They're kooks. But that's that's the tactic. You can, they won't even, you know, hey, I did this for 40 years. I've seen a whole lot more than I'm willing to discuss on your show. But yet there are people out there who do nothing but watch certain networks every single day. And now with the covid, they have to watch certain networks because they can't do anything else. They wouldn't believe me for a second because they've made up their mind. Right. Well, so let's give them a spin here. First of all, I think that term is called gaslighting. If I'm not, if right. I'm not right, gaslight makes someone think they're crazy. <laughs> up. So, so let's give those people. Is that the term? That's good. Yeah. So, like, you see it also. You know, uh, someone attacks you, and you make them think they're crazy. You make them think they're making it up. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. My exactly. wife all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. They all do. <laughs> So that people who, who, you know, will will have a, let's give them a challenge and let's look at, at extremism from the other angle, right-wing extremism. Uh, What's going on? Who who are the, who are the groups? Who are, you know, what kind of groups are, are behind right-wing extremism? Where is that coming from? What, what did you look at at your time and what's going on today? In my time? Well, by the time I, I came on board with the Bureau, we had done a very effective job of dismantling the Ku Klux Klan. Um, when I was in Georgia, the Klan was a faint shadow of what it had previously been. And a lot of that has to do with the FBI effort under J. Edgar Hoover, who is never being is never treated fairly. But he's the one who sent he and, and Attorney General Bobby Kennedy sent the FBI down south in force to clean up the Klan. Um, so the Klan is, in my estimation, not effective anymore. You have a lot of, uh, survivalists. You have a lot of, um, what they used to call the John Birch Society and some other society, but you've got a lot of people in, in, in the heartland of America that are angry, um, between us and all your listeners, I would say so far they've been showing incredible restraint, incredible restraint, um, because 
I am absolutely confident that there are billions of very angry people out there. So um, what is going on at the moment? It's, it's relatively quiet. And do I think that they're well-organized? No, I don't think they can be under this age of uh, tech technology and technological surveillance, unless these groups put away their cell phones and, and meet person to person, um, you know, they, they will always be identified and they will always be outed. The common media narrative these days is that, you know, to, to what's the, 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 the analogy is, uh, you know, to the Antifa's to the left with the, with the, with the proud boys are to the right. Or, uh, yeah, the proud, the proud boys are strange. Or I, I, you know, frankly, I know very little about them. Uh, I mean, I've seen some very strange, you know, very strange things about the proud boys. They, the, the proud boys don't have a great following, um, as far as I know. They don't have a great. They they haven't even. They didn't really surface until you know the past few years to speak of to any significance. Um, there is, I don't know, I, I, you know, it's, it's difficult to not, it's difficult to, yes, there are one-offs all the time. You're going to have um, individuals that are just crazy, all right, whether they, you know, the, the, the guy who walked into the, the church in, in South Carolina and, and killed the African-American people or the or the jcc in pittsburgh you're gonna have crazies one-off crazies and these are legitimately people who are crazy and they find anything look look at the guy who killed john lennon in new york city right i mean there's always going to be somebody out there who's who's crazy and they have a hair trigger and something will set them off and but is there a big organization of them? No. Is there any kind of <laughs> violent extremist organization in America today that, that the FBI today or that Americans should be worried about? No. I mean, there are, you saw that group that was taken down that was plat, plotting an assassination against the, the governor of Minnesota. Was it Minnesota? Michigan. Michigan. It was, uh, what was her name? Gretchen. Uh... Yeah. Okay, I thought that was Minnesota. I mean, they were uh, that was a group of quote unquote good old boys. They got together at the local saloon and they were sick and tired of whatever she was implementing, whether it was, you know, uh, quarantine, shutting down a bar, whatever. And they probably were having some um, dangerous conversations, and somebody in the group um, informed on them. That's what it is. It, there's no. There's no significant, not at this point in time that I'm aware of, there isn't a, a major significant uh, white supremacist organization anywhere in the United States. And, um, and yet if you well, listen well, to... Hang, the- hang on. I mean, we had... Uh, so when you saw that, the march, in, the famous march in Charlottesville, right? The, the right. Famous, yeah. You know, good folks on both sides. Um, who's, who's marching? And, and I mean, I'm, I'm terrified when I see people... I'll call them flat out neo-Nazis marching in the streets of America, uh, raising mm-hmm. flags, some people with, with swastikas. I mean, you see, yeah. so you, are you saying that they're not dangerous? Are you saying 
that they're oh, they're they're well, what, what, they're dangerous, but they are they're not as organized, or they're not there's not as many as the news media would make you think. Yeah, there's always hey, I could go into any town in the Midwest and find a dozen a dozen crazy guys that still fly the the uh, you know the stars and bars flag, and uh, you know uh, I could find a dozen of them in any town. But we had um, in the recent uh, just an article today, yesterday, recent FBI report: sixty uh, percent of hate crimes in America, sixty percent of hate crimes in America are towards the Jewish community, and the Jewish community is one point six percent of America, sixty mm. percent. So I mean, who you know, and, and we've seen this, we've seen this over the past few years: swastikas and and uh, you know, gas the Jews and all these kind of things. Spray paint. Where do you see it? Yeah, synagogues and community centers. You see, uh, okay. you see pamphlets uh, being passed around universities calling out, you know, Jewish power um, and, and all these things. And then we had the synagogue, the two synagogue shootings. There was the Pittsburgh one and there was the Poe one in right. California. Um, the, and those were the ones that actually carried through. So in, in our minds, in our minds, the, the physical threat, forget the, you know, the boycotts of Israel, mm-hmm. the physical mm-hmm. threat to American Jews right now is from extreme rightists. So you're saying they're out there, but they're just not very organized, if I'm understanding. No, they're, they, I mean, it, in either one of those cases, and you probably know more about them than I do, the, the shooter, was the shooter tied into any, organiz, any legitimate or any real organization or network of people with similar violent bent, or was that just an individual inflamed by things he read on the internet inflamed by his own life inflamed by books he read or was he part of a legitimate organization either event to the best of my knowledge he was not they were not connected to any legitimate organization they were lone mm-hmm. leaders that had a mm-hmm. political ideology yeah. if i had to right. i would bet good money that they were radicalized by being engaged with lots of different reddit or 4chan type groups uh, on the internet which right. them all kinds of garbage. What's, and, what's that website? Disturber or whatever it is. The new yeah, Nazi all kinds website. of stuff. Look, you can you can find any any viewpoint. I mean, that's online, yeah. and that's kind of the danger of of, of you know, the media that we're now all so yeah. intimately what, what, uh, involved what is with. The, what does the FBI do? Um, what what did and be, maybe today it's beyond the FBI. What does do national security apparatuses do? Um, because I know how they go about organizations and i've seen it in these right what do you do about lone we we hear call them lone wolves radicalized individuals where the ideology is out there and then they act on their own how do you how do you tackle that well it's a it's it's a it's it's very complex because um a radicalized individual if if the group itself has been designated a terrorist group then you can take steps you can start investigations you can monitor communications, but if somebody is just an angry person who likes to visit these crazy sites, um, under our laws, you really can't do anything. Now, if somebody if somebody reports this strange activity, um, you can open what they call a preliminary investigation. That's that's just you can begin to look at certain things, but you can only go so far with that because of, you know, rights all people carry as citizens. Um, If I'm standing 
if I'm preaching murder, mayhem, and death, yeah, that steps over the line. And um, if I'm encouraging domestic terrorism, states have have laws against that, and the federal government can deal with that too. Um, but you know, they've always agonized over this fine line between, you know, what is one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. What is one man's terrorist is another man's um, uh, green world advocate, save the whales advocate. You know, so there's this 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 dangerous line. But in, until there are overt acts, and by an overt act, I mean you start stockpiling explosives, um, you start collecting guns and ammunition, things of that nature. Until there are overt acts that you can, as an investigator with the FBI or anybody. Until you can identify these overt, clear overt acts, you really can't do a whole lot. You really can't do much because of this, you know, hey, the First Amendment says freedom of speech. Although it used to say you can't you can't scream fire in a burning, you know, in a, or in a building. Um, that's changed a lot. I mean, they seem to be clamping down a little bit more on that, but. Still, it's a very slippery slope. It's a very fine line between what is freedom of speech and what is advocating advocating violence. Um, it's a fine line. You know, it's a fine line. So the, the courts and the police have a lot of trouble with that. But again, in the FBI, you have to have some indicia, indicia of, of overt acts being taken to... Um, you know, to conduct a crime and terrorism is a crime. Um, so you have to collect the information to go to a court and say, I've got strong indication that this individual is about to or is advocating and is about to participate in violence. Hmm. And hmm. it better be strong because most courts will throw it right out the back door if it isn't. So, so we're in an interesting era right now. Um, you know, and I mentioned kind of the Russians and the Chinese and, and spreading uh, disinformation campaigns online. Right. And we're seeing, you know, kind of uh, just within the American social media scene, this kind of uh, shift to parlor, right, where people say, OK, we're done with we have a situation today because you're, you're talking about a situation where in America, the, the ideal of free speech, OK, in America and, and I think many democracies around the world. You know, part of one of the cornerstones of liberal democracies is the, the concept of free speech, as long as you're not right. hurt anyone. And, right. and so, you know, the government is saying, OK, you know, uh, this might be wrong. It might be false. It might be harmful, but you're not physically hurting anyone. We can't jump in. And now we're in a new kind of place as far as humanity goes, where you have corporations, you have Twitter, you have Facebook um, mm -hmm. who control a lot of these spaces and they're not government. And, uh, and so they can do things that government can't do. So you see some efforts, you know, Holocaust denial. I think it's a good thing that it's, it's banned on these kind of platforms. Um, and there's the whole issue and you see the congressional testimonies where, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is sitting in front of Congress and he's being attacked uh, or criticized for, you know, the Facebook or Twitter are censoring conservative points of view, for example. But then you have a third element in this, in that you have uh, deliberately malicious foreign actors taking advantage of this space to oh, yeah. 
disinformation campaigns. What do you do with this? I mean, this isn't bombs and guns, Ray. This is this is a whole new kind Mines. of warfare that could yeah. be more destructive. I would say that it's definitely more destructive. It's definitely much more dangerous because it because it quite literally attacks them. At the end of the day, it attacks the minds of the average yeah. American. And yes. I read a, I read a great New Yorker piece recently, um, giving a clear example of this as someone sitting. It might have been in Russia. Might have been somewhere else causing people to go out and riot in an American city because of this, one of these disinformation campaigns. So mm-hmm. it, in the end, it actually did lead to physical violence. What, what can government do about this? What can the, you know, what, what can governments and democracies do about this? Today? Well, I, I think, what can you do? It has the, has the monster been let in the house? Um, and are we ever going to get it back out of the house? Um, these, these, uh, Tech giants, uh, these tech, these giant tech platforms, or social media, whatever they're called, they are authorized and licensed by the U.S. government. Um, they're whatever, whatever technology or bandwidth or whatever they're using is with the permission of the U.S. government. So, to some extent, they should be responsive to the U.S. government. But I can tell you personally. Um, Many, many, many people I know have tried to send me something and it's been blocked or taken down. And in 90% of those cases, it was relatively benign. It may just not have been strongly uh, supportive of one presidential candidate, but it was nothing. It was nothing that should have been censored. So I think you, you know, I mean, we see this all the time with our ads. We'll try to publish ads for this podcast that can be of the most benign nature. You know, we're doing an ad, uh, uh, a podcast with. Uh, I know we, we had a two parter ahead of the elections with one episode with a Democrat, one episode with a Republican. And they Facebook blocked us from posting the ad right, because they were of a political nature. Jesus. And we literally That's presented it. both sides of, of the of the election. <laughs> and there's no and there's no discord. I mean, there's no recourse. I can't you know, you, you technically have an, the ability to appeal. But to whom? Are you appealing to an algorithm? I mean, like, this is, yeah. it's not like you have a, a telephone number of a, a customer service representative to call up and say, "Hey, I think I'm being treated unfairly here." It's like you, you actually do, by the way. Oh, there is. <laughs> yeah, I actually know the person. Oh, you know that guy? Okay, <laughs> well, let's 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 put their name out. No, but it, for real though, it's it seems like look. Yeah, who who's who's got to act here because this seems like the a new kind of uh, warfare, you know, a new kind. It of- is. It is. This is to me this is the the most worrisome thing that's happened recently in America is this sudden uh ramping up of censoring the primary uh and I won't even call it news, just information outlets. They've they've garnered control of a huge portion of the information that Americans are exposed to. And now they're deciding what Americans can see and what they can't see. This is, this is actually mind blowing for me for someone who spent decades, you know, you know, as a cold war, you know, warrior, so to speak. Cold warrior. Yeah. Uh, to, to see this happening here in the United States and to and to realize that so many Americans seem to be OK with it or that they don't even notice it. This is shocking to me. It's truly shocking to me. I think it's the biggest concern I have right now on top of everything else. COVID 
COVID not excluded. I think that this, this um, censoring, hey, with the exception of some horrifically, you know, when I grew up, they wouldn't even show violence on television. They wouldn't even, they weren't even allowed to show blood when Elliot Ness shot down the bad guy. And look what's on television today, right? So why are they suddenly censoring what we can think and hear and talk about? Let Americans decide themselves and make that decision what they want to read. You know, if somebody wants to post something and they're a complete idiot, let them post it and show what an idiot they are. But who who should have the right to sit up in some you know, 12 story uh, C-suite and decide that for us. And to me, it seems very, it's always seemed to me like the the best argument against a bad argument is a better argument instead of, (laughs) instead of removing that person's argument from the sphere, instead of removing it from Facebook. That's what we would like like to think. And, and, and the, you know, and here, maybe we can jump into a discussion about conspiracy theories because uh, by the way, I I read the, I think I've plugged it to you before, Ben, at least in conversation, fantastic book about why Americans especially believe in conspiracy theories called Fantasyland, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Um, really fascinating book takes that takes you back to the beginning of American history and why kind of Americans have always been prone to um, big dreams, but also conspiracy theories and kind of quirky hmm. religions and things like that. Um, you know, this seems to be though some at a new height of a new height uh, of, of prominence of conspiracy theories, um, and, and and a lot of them, you know, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this uh, um, from your perspective. You know, I just I just heard recently about QAnon, um, and I think it's mm-hmm. the most ridiculous thing in the world. Um, right. But they always have an anchor of truth. They always have an anchor of truth, and right. that's why people, sure. even reasonable people, can believe them. You know. Um, sure. QAnon, Democrats connected to power, child sex trafficking, and then, and then something find, like Jeffrey. And then, you, and then Clinton's on his plane 27 times going to <laughs> Fantasy Island. What, what's, your, yeah. what's your take on some of these conspiracy theories? What, you know, what, what worries you the most? Um, did, did you ever look into these in the FBI and try to get to like, you know, was there any kind of ever government effort against these conspiracy theories? Would that be a conspiracy in itself, actually? <laughs> And who uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I think it would be a conspiracy in itself because I, I again, uh, I knew people who investigated the Kennedy assassination, and I knew people who handled a lot of the evidence, and I knew an individual now deceased who was very close to that investigation. We're going to run a rabbit hole there. Yeah, well, yet today there are still people who will swear. You know, that um, certain people as part of an organization killed John F. Kennedy and they, they, they refuse to believe anything else. There are people who think that that hangar 41 is loaded with alien corpses. My brother-in-law, who definitely is not listening to this, so I will definitely say this. <laughs> I, was, I was at uh, uh, dinner. Uh, it was, must have been a couple of months ago at his house uh, or at his parents' house, rather. Now, he's an intelligent right. guy. Okay. Master's degree in political science, like totally like you would think. Okay. And I talked, we were talking about the space program and um, 
I said it would be great, you know, to see to see, you know, humans go back to the moon. He goes, what do you mean go back to the moon? The moon landing was fake. Come on, man. You, you, mean, <laughs> you mean to tell me that in the 1960s, they had the ability to send up people half a quarter of a million miles into space and back. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, clearly the interest there was to, you know, propaganda against the Soviets. Nobody ever went to the moon. Come on. You're, you're, you're ridiculous. <laughs> do you believe that? I'm just like, there you go. You're a smart you guy. Yeah. You say? So, so there is, because it's, it was in the sixties. And if, you know, if, if you didn't yeah. have yeah, wouldn't put it on Facebook live, then it didn't, it didn't happen. So it's like, so, so Kennedy, I mean, who wants well, to talk about Kennedy? What was the, we got to, <laughs> what's that? We got to talk about Kennedy. Yeah. So you, you knew people who were, uh, maybe, maybe investigated maybe adjust yeah. your camera a little bit just so we can see, uh, see your face a little better. Am I on camera? Yeah. Just adjust, adjust it a little bit so we can see you a little better. Hold on a minute. Um, can you still okay. not see this by the way? I haven't been looking at you. Okay, there you are. I haven't been looking at you guys for the last hour. Okay. okay. I didn't have it on. All right, go ahead. There you go. You're good. Um, so yeah. no, let's get into some of these conspiracy theories. Yeah. Let's talk about Kennedy. Sure. Let's talk about aliens. Okay. <laughs> aliens is not a conspiracy theory. I, I just, that's, that's one of those that I would be, I would not be surprised if, if the U S government is hiding aliens or aliens related stuff somewhere in uh, somewhere in a military warehouse, somewhere in Nevada or whatever, or New Mexico. I did it to the Denver airport. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, you know, personally, from my experience with the government, I don't know that it's got the, the, the competence to keep something like that secret <laughs> forever. I, I really don't think it does. I've been, I've been in the, what is, what is it referred to as this the swamp i've been down there i was down there for eight nine years in the middle of that i don't think it has the ability to keep that thing well you know the piece of news came out just recently about the that joint and i'm really going off track guys i apologize but that joint israeli u.s hit that took place last august supposedly iran you don't think that happened according to foreign according to foreign sources yes all right. Well, that thing just leaked out um, here in the States, although it took supposedly took place last August. Right. So nothing ever stays secret for long. And I don't think I don't think that the, the government, if they had evidence of ter- extraterrestrials, I think we it'd be out by now. I, I can't imagine it could keep that a secret for that long. Yeah. It, you know, I had a. You know, I, I, I served where I served and I had a close friend who was a top advisor to um, to the prime minister. And uh, I remember he told me once, um, wh- whenever the choice is between government conspiracy and just sheer, you know, lack of competence, like you said, for the most part, <laughs> lack of competence, big absolutely, absolutely. coordinated, complicated things, have a really hard time keeping secrets. Well, and, and that's kind and, of the- and journalists, I got to say, investigative journalists are very good. Like, right. I think it's just. Yeah. It's just real, and, and that and that was kind of my answer to my brother-in-law about the thing with the, with the moon landing. I was like, "Do you understand how many people worked at Northrop Grumman, right. you know, uh, at NASA, at Boeing, you know, and all the different organizations that took place? You would literally have to get easily two hundred thousand people to keep a secret yeah. in some kind yeah. of like you yeah. can't. Ex- the White, can't the White do House it. today has like 
leaks every two seconds. It's a sieve. It's a sieve. Yeah. You couldn't keep it secret. Oh. What, would uh, you guys although, ever investigate conspiracy theories, um, you know, from a national security perspective? Was there any kind of connection to that? Well, we wouldn't, uh, you know, it wouldn't come to us as a conspiracy theory per se. It'd be come to us as unverified information. And again, yeah, I'm sure uh, we've looked at a number of things, but there's only so far you can go without a court order to start monitoring people. You know, and to get that court order, you have to have some probable cause, you know, something solid. So you can you can take a look at any theory that comes your way and you can check it out through open sources. You can check it out through informants. You can do whatever you normally would do. But to take it to the next level, you have to have a court's buy in. So. Without, as I said, without something pretty evidential, uh, court won't give you that ability. Why? Why are Americans um, so susceptible to conspiracy theories today? <laughs> maybe ever. I'm curious if you have an opinion. No, no. Did you ever live read some of those tabloids that come out of London? <laughs> I mean, they're crazy. They are crazy, and I think some of the Italian tabloids too. Who, who knows what the Russian people are into, you know, but yeah, we're definitely, we love it. We eat it up. There's no question about it. You know, that's, I don't know why, because maybe, maybe life gets so boring. Yeah. Life gets so boring at times. People want something exciting. I mean, we're, and and we're living in it right now, right? I mean, here we are, COVID. It's fun. You want to go down rabbit holes of conspiracy theories. Yeah. 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 It's funny. Exactly. It's funny you said tabloids. I watched the I rewatched the movie Men in Black. You remember that Men in Black? Oh yeah, Tommy Lee Jones, Will Smith. So I re I, I watched it. I showed it to my kids for the first time, and uh, he's he's <laughs> the ropes right when he's new on the job, and he says, right. actually, the best source of information you want to read these the tabloids. Uh, you know, the National Enquirer every day. That's your best source. <laughs> it's a great movie. Yeah. It really is, really is a great movie. To to tie it back into the you know context of our conversation, you know, why do people believe in the conspiracy theories? Because you look at an organization like the National Enquirer and how ridiculous it seems to be, and you'll realize that like there are connections between Trump and the National Enquirer, and you'll Mm -hmm. realize that you know that are there? Yeah, there are. There was there was something to do with Michael Cohen and the National Enquirer (laughs) and Stormy Daniels and that whole that whole thing. I won't get into it, but it it's like. You can always somehow close the circle somewhere, and and it's okay. yeah. well, they take a couple points uh, that actually exist, and then they make up some crazy. You know, they take a couple points, and then they make some kind of crazy story to connect them. Yeah. That that yeah. could make sense if you really build enough connection points, and then, like I said, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, the the, the anchor is there for people to say, oh, that really could, oh, that's true, that makes sense. Now that explains, you know, and, and we had an episode if you remember. Uh, we had an episode a while back uh, where we talked to a, um, a scientist who, who studies uh, kind of rational decision making, and, and uh, you know, you know, and we were talking about it in the in the context of COVID. And he explained, I thought this was fascinating, that you know, um, you, you know, the the virus that got out of China, where there happens to be a lab. How many, you know, that's a huge city of of however many million people, and how many viruses are actually happening all around the world in in various parts of the world that never actually spread anywhere so 
we kind of tend to take things that are really random and just mm. try to, you know, uh, what did you call it? Recency bias, um, mm-hmm. you know, just to see what happened and then kind of say, oh, well, then there must be some really big reason why that happened, not taking into account the million things that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. But that virus definitely came out of the lab. Definitely, definitely. So uh, you spent some time abroad, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, yeah. In what capacity, where were you? He was on a cruise in the Caribbean. <laughs> and it was wonderful. Um, we had, uh, after 9-11, the, the FBI formed a, um, a uh, special response team called the Fly, the Flyaway Team um, under Director Mueller. And I was picked, I was selected to, to head that team. So we had to build a whole new concept within the Bureau, which was uh, we were almost like first responders on call 24-7. We reported back to headquarters um, to Director Mueller's um, you know, second-in-command and our job was to, whenever there was a terrorist attack around the world that, that involved a U.S. citizen or uh, a U.S. nexus, we would deploy as quickly as we could. And we would bring subject matter experts, you know, whether it was forensic or, or explosives, uh, latent fingerprints, whatever it was. Um, and uh, we would try to assist, um, you know, the... Uh, the liaison or the, the local security agency, if they were open to it, we would try to assist them in their investigation. We were all over, we were all over every, for about three years, every terrorist act, whether it was inside the U.S. or internationally, we were on the road. We were there offering our assistance. So, so which countries did you get to visit? I got to visit uh, Turkey. I got to visit um Indonesia. I got to visit uh, Afghanistan multiple times, Iraq, some places that I can't mention, (laughs) several places in Africa. Um, Yeah, we, and there were a a number of cases inside the States where the the local FBI field division, this is right after 9-11 and our terrorist capabilities were not where they should have been. Um, so we would we would gather up uh, a, a group of experts, whatever we thought was needed. It could have been cyber. It could have been um, interrogation, translation, and we grab or grab a group of these experts and we would deploy to the the city that had the incident, whether it was Portland or Buffalo or Albany. Um, you know, so it was. We were on the go all the time, and we we're a small unit. We we're about twelve agents. Um, I'll give you one example of a sim- uh, something we did when um, after the U.S. Uh, invaded Afghanistan, and we had secured Bagram Air Base. Um, there was something called document exploitation uh, that was set up to analyze information that was collected in the field. So every time a suspect or a real bad guy was arrested, we, you know, our people would gather up all the information in the vicinity or on his person, bring it back and analyze it. Okay, see what see what we could find. Well, in the beginning, uh, because the people who were doing this were were not um, 
they were not um, trained, right? So we'd have these military missions up in the up in the mountains. They'd come back with a huge brown bag full of paper, you know, litter, pocket litter, whatever you want to call it, and they'd dump it on the floor. And we'd say, "Where'd you find this?" And they'd say, "Well, we're not sure." And we'd say, "Well, who was carrying it?" Well, we're not sure. So what we did is we went to work and we created some some procedures and some process and we trained all those young soldiers how to conduct a crime scene you know a methodical crime scene and in short short order we were able to say this note after it's translated this note is preparation for a terrorist attack and you know what it was found on the person of Ahmed who is currently in cell 22 down the hallway you know, just to be able to put those dots together was immense. It was huge. So we uh, we did things like that. I participated in some uh, interrogations. Um, we we were involved in the investigation of the uh, USS Cole. We were involved in the investigation of, um, uh, as I said, there was there were multiple attacks in Istanbul. One I think was involved the HSBC Bank and the Jewish Center and the and the British Consulate General was killed outside the consulate all simultaneously. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I remember that attack. Um, did you ever work in Israel or with Israeli uh, intelligence agents? Um, I have worked in Israel. So post my FBI career, um, I began working as a um, a police instructor so i do police instructing for and i've done that internationally for the u.s government so i've been yeah i've been to i've been to israel let me think how many times i think twice you didn't call me (laughs) (laughs) you wouldn't recognize me (laughs) well what was your curious what was your experience working with israeli uh police um Hey, highly professional, highly professional. Uh, always impressed. They're 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 really good at their job. Really good at their job. They're dedicated. They're oftentimes. I wish we had that kind of dedication. But I know what your I know what your incentive is. Yeah. So what, I respect what, that. Have you? Uh, what was the most surprising interaction you had uh, abroad, uh, either in a positive way or a negative way? you know, that you met, uh, you worked with a certain force or a certain agency from a different country, and it just really surprised you one way or the other? Hmm. It surprised me. Um, Dan asks well, Okay. All right. Okay. I, I, here's one. Um, we were involved in, uh, after the U.S. embassies were bombed in Tanzania and in, uh, in uh, Kenya, Nairobi. So I was part of the team that was sent to Tanzania and uh, to conduct interrogation down there. So I apologize why that thing keeps going off. So anyway, so we're, we, we had arrested several suspects in Dar Salaam that we felt were affiliated with the attack on the uh, embassy there. And we began to interrogate one particular suspect and day after day after day. Now the conditions, the conditions there were very difficult and you don't want to be a criminal in jail in Tanzania, but conditions aren't too comfortable. 
So we were interrogating this individual who's about five of us day in, day out. And um, I'll never forget one day, we suspected that this, this individual had been the, the manager of the safe house where the attackers had done all their preparations before they attacked the U.S. consulate. Uh, we had good reason to believe that. I think he had, he had some ownership in the building or there was some connection that, that pinned it on him. So I'll never forget the day when finally um, he, he said, uh, yes, he identified um, two of the suspected attackers. And everyone in the room said, this is our guy. We got, we, got, we got the first break in this case. He's admitting to the fact that he knew these terrorists. And so I remember um, I was in the room and I was, I was the senior guy at that time. And I said, well, stand, stand by. I said, I got to call headquarters. I got to call Department of Justice in Washington and, and get their approval to go forward. And in the, uh, in the police officer, looked at me like I had lost my mind in the, the, the uh, Tanzanian. So I call headquarters and I said, look, I think we got a break in this case. I think he's ready to admit his, his complicity and identify some of the criminals or some of the uh, suspects. And headquarters puts immediately puts me on the phone with um, the uh, general counsel, right? General counsel immediately says, don't ask another question. Mm-hmm. I said, excuse me. They said, you have to get him a lawyer before you ask any more questions. So I said, okay, got off the phone and the uh, Tanzanians looked at me and said, so what do we do? I said, we have to get a lawyer. And they said, why? I said, because we're going to, we intend to prosecute this individual in the United States. And we can't do that unless we prepare this case in the proper manner. He needs legal representation. Are there any lawyers? So they looked, they were bewildered. They had no idea, you know, what was going on. So finally, one of the detectives said, we have a law school in town. So they said, we'll go down to law school and get a lawyer. So we took a coffee break. They went downtown. Apparently, they went into the classroom and grabbed this guy right out of the classroom, drug him out of the classroom and brought him back to the interrogation center. Now, here's this. He's terrified. You see, look, and he, he still had his, they practiced the common law, I think, to some, some extent. So he still had his robe with him. And I think he might have even had his, his. Yeah. So they drag him in. And here we are. All, here's all these stern looking Americans and these stern looking, you know, police officers. And this poor guy looked like he was going to have a heart attack. And he sat down and we explained to him, you know, this is your job. You're going to defend this individual from here on in. I said, because so this is absolutely happened. So he, he takes this individual little back room. They have a little brief discussion, come back out. And uh, he said, we're ready to proceed. I said, fine. He said, my client's ready to confess to everything, give you all the details, all the information you want. It's fantastic. <laughs> it was fantastic. So we proceeded to, to take down all the information. And afterwards I said to the lawyer, I said, uh, why was he so cooperative? And he said, because I told him the last thing in the world he wants to do is go to jail here. He's so far better off going to jail in America. <laughs> so that was a case. That was a case where having a lawyer present really, really helped. 
that was one of those surprising incidents. But yeah, the lawyer pulled it out for us. That's great. The case came together after that because then we were able to identify through cell phones uh, and a whole bunch of bank records. And we tracked down everybody who was involved in that bombing. A classic, classic investigation. Wow. So this was the, you said the bombing of the American consulate, correct? In Dar es Salaam. You remember this? There were like a Vaguely, couple yeah. of attacks that happened before yeah. 9-11. There was yeah. the USS Cole, the Cole and there were these two embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, right. double bombing right. at the same time, right? Yeah. This was outside yep. in East Africa, basically, right? right? Um, yeah. yeah. And I think there was uh, an Israeli, uh, Israeli victims of some of those attacks, if I'm not mistaken, in, in Nairobi. Uh, and I and I could swear that that there were there were men that were part of our team down there that had a certain accent, <laughs> sounded like you guys. <laughs> <laughs> what um, you know of all the foreign countries and, and groups, what who impressed you the most? Um, you don't have to say Israel. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm curious, like who, and maybe not impressed you in the sense of well, these guys are good, but. Uh, maybe um, impressed you in the sense that, oh, they do things very different than us, but it's, it's effective. Like, did you ever get that kind of, uh, mm-hmm. know, kind of reaction when you worked with someone? Yeah, I did. Um, first of all, I think that of all the services I've worked with, I would say, you know, Israel and, and, and Great Britain, you know, they're the best. I did some work with the Australians. They're, yeah, they're really good. Yeah. Really good. And then I would say I was very surprised at some of the third world countries. You know, we, we worked in some places where these investigators would, wouldn't even have a pencil. You know, if you gave them a couple of uh, pads and some, something to write with, they were, they were so happy and appreciative. But, and this takes me back to something we talked about much earlier. You, you can never underestimate common sense. It's long, you know, common sense goes a long way. You can have all the degrees in the world, but if you don't have ambition or initiative and you don't have uh, experience, like street experience yeah. and common mm-hmm. sense, in my mind, the degree is worthless. So we, I've worked with investigators in Iraq and Afghanistan, hardest work. And these fellas, if they went home, if they left the base and went home, they probably wouldn't come back alive because everyone had been identified and listed in a terrorist notebook. Um, but yet hardworking, as I said, put their lives on the line and, and, and intuitively smart, intuitively smart. And particularly when you work in a country where culturally there's such a divide, you know, we as Americans, if you're if you're dealing if you're dealing with a Nigerian or you're dealing with someone in, in, in any Middle Eastern country, it's it's you can't read the signs. You can't read the signs, and I think you, you know what I'm talking about. You can be sitting across the table from somebody in Saudi Arabia, and they'll, out of politeness, they'll tell you exactly what they think you want to hear, whether it's true or not but they'll be telling you what they think makes you happy. So unless you have the help of an indigenous, trusted indigenous local person, you're a babe in the woods. You're a total babe in the woods in most of those 
third world countries. You think you know what you're doing. You think you want to be their friend. You think they want to be your friend. You don't know. You have no clue. You have no clue. Did you ever see, um, you know, some of your colleagues um, and, and, and I could, you know, I, oftentimes we get um, uh, much of the world is very appreciative of America. And at the same time, there's always that kind of uh, what's that mm-hmm. word for um, that kind of sense that, oh, these Americans always think they know better. And they, you right, know, right. did you ever get that? You seem to be aware of these differences and that, you know you know, that you don't know everything and you need to like have locals with you to translate the cultural context. But did you have colleagues who, who seemed to, what's that word I'm looking for? Like egocentric or American centric. They're kind of like, I know better than everyone. Did, did you ever have these kind of uh, people working oh, with you? I know what you're talking about, uh, but I, I, I would be hard pressed to remember one because usually at, at during my career, at least the last seven, eight years of my career, it was just a handful of the, the people who went overseas to conduct these investigations were generally speaking veterans, hmm. uh, some military experience or they're, they're older, you know, and they were smarter. So I can't say that I ever worked with one that had that arrogant American attitude to speak of, you know, most of them, I think, were smart enough to realize they were on alien ground, you know, and they, they had to listen and, and be cognitive or sensitive. One of the things good investigators always did was they tried to put themselves in the shoes of the individual they're addressing. That's a good investigator. He can, he can leave himself and imagine being in that person's position. Now, one of the best investigators I ever worked with from the standpoint of terrorism was an individual named Ali Soufan. Uh, Ali Soufan um, was probably one of the best terrorism investigators the FBI had after 9-11. And I'm sure if you took a look at his name, he's all over the place. He did a number of interviews. I also worked a fellow by the name of George Pirro, worked for me. Uh, I believe both Lebanese descent, George was one of the men interrogators that that my unit sent to interrogate Saddam Hussein. Uh, And George did a brilliant job, brilliant job um, with spent, I think he spent probably six weeks with Saddam Hussein as the primary interrogator. But you know what he was? He was a a, a young guy with great maturity. He had experience as a, a police officer in Phoenix. He spoke Arabic. He understand. He understood Islam, um, but he had that. He had a lot of maturity for a, a man his age. And uh, Sufan the same way. I watched him do brilliant things during interrogations. He had a tactic. His technique, because he knew he knew the Quran like a scholar, and he was patient. And understanding, at least he he projected that he was understanding. And I saw him get information out of people that had been on hunger strikes, that had been uh, through some enhanced interrogation, that had been through all manner of hardship. And Ollie would sit down with them for a day or two. And before you know it, let me let me take you fast forward on this. Do you still have another minute? Yeah, yeah, please go. Fascinating. So after 9-11, on 9-11, I think... I might have mentioned this to you. In 9-11, I was in Sana'a, Yemen, 
I had arrived in Sinai, Yemen three days before 9-11. And I was deployed by the New York office of the FBI. That's where I was working. I was deployed with a team to go back and reconstitute the investigation in, into the attack on the USS Cole. We went back because there was a changeover in, uh, in the U.S. Embassy and the new ambassador was much more willing to work with us. Um, so we went back, we came back with a team of about six people, including elements of the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. They had a couple of guys with us. We arrived, I think it was somewhere around September 9th, you know, 2001, we started to you know, put our plan in place. I was part of the, uh, I was responsible for security of the team. So we began to uh, uh, draw our, uh, you know, our daily routine, our procedures, how we were going to get from where we were to the, uh, to the, to the uh, Yemeni prison every night. And on the third day, all hell broke loose. You know, we turned on television. We saw the World Trade Center coming down. Ironically, my boss, John O'Neill, um, had just taken the job as head of security at the World Trade Center. He retired from the FBI right before I left. Yeah, this is the greatest irony in my career. And I liked him. I liked working for him. He was an agent's boss. I left a week later. He dies. Now, if you ever, I urge you to look up, there's a movie, Harvey Keitel plays John O'Neill. It's called The Man Who Knew. So it's a it's it's a good movie and I think it's pretty accurate. Uh, John John identified John and John's people identified Al Qaeda early in the '90s as a threat. We were in the New York office. He oversaw national security uh, branch and the the fledgling Al Qaeda squad we had came to John with this information. You know. It's, it's complicated, but they came to John O'Neill with this information said, we've identified a group that calls itself Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, the base, uh, through international wiretaps. And we think these guys are really bad and they're really out to get us. Well, it didn't take long before they tied them into things like the, okay, the Bohinka plot. We don't need to go in that. Tie them into the, uh, the embassy bombings, the attack on the USS Cole. So what John O'Neill had done, because he believed his investigators and they were real veterans, they were real, they really knew what they were doing. We, we filed for and got an indictment in the, uh, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Southern District of New York. So when 9-11 happened, the FBI already had an indictment on Osama bin Laden, uh, an outstanding indictment to arrest Osama bin Laden for a whole series of terrorist attacks. That's why New York was very pivotal, pivotal and involved in the subsequent investigation. Even though headquarters wanted to run it, all the knowledge really was up in New York, because, in the New York field because office. Sorry? Because of John O'Neill. Because of John O'Neill. Yeah, because John O'Neill, as, as I said, he was an, he was an agent's boss. He He believed in his people and he let his people know he backed them. And when, and I don't let me forget, cause I got another great story about John O'Neill after this. So John O'Neill uh, listened to his experts. He 
convinced the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, Southern District, New York, that Osama bin Laden and um, Al-Qaeda were behind this series of attacks. Yemen. So that they indicted him in, in New York, even before 9-11. Anyway, so John died in the, uh, the collapse of World Trade Center. And the last thing he said to a close friend of his while he's overseeing the evacuation, he was on his cell phone. And I heard this firsthand from this lady who he called. He said, do you think they'll believe me now? And after that, the tower came down and John was killed. It's the most ironic Yes. Ironic yes. event of my whole career. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It was unbelievable. FBI agent who was raising the flag on Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden was killed after retiring from the FBI in the 9 A week, a week after he retired. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. It's an incredible story. I think uh, I still to this day can't believe it. If you look at I have a picture of he and I in the book together. It was at his. I have the last picture taken of John O'Neill alive. I was working a security detail on the street the day of his retirement luncheon. And I had worked for him on a project before that. So, so we knew each other well. I rushed when we were done with the security detail. I rushed up to the conference room in 26 Federal Plaza. And everyone was gone. And the only person in that room was John O'Neill and a cameraman who was breaking down his equipment. John was really happy to see me. Ray, you know, he said, come on over here. I want to take a picture with you. He made the cameraman take all of his equipment out, snapped a picture, which is, again, it's in my book. And then we said goodbye. The next day, I and, and my group or my team headed out for Yemen. And uh, rest is history. You guys are out of time. No, we're not out of time. We're looking at the uh, just looking at his picture. We pulled up John O'Neill to see. Uh, That's him. That's him. And you'll see. And, and again, having known intimately the facts of this 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 matter, that movie is pretty close to accurate. We're gonna we're gonna way through. He kind of you know what I can I can kind of see how Harvey Keitel uh, would. Uh, yeah, Keitel little, does a good job to play him. That, that's that's just yeah. unbelievable. Um, you said you had another job. Let me tell. Yeah, I was just going to. Sorry to interrupt. So, going back to um, the spy cases, right? When we were talking about how many FBI traders there actually were, right? When um, help me with his name again. You guys remembered it quick quicker than I did. Yeah, Hanson, Robert Hanson from the movie Breach. When Robert Hansen lobbied for that job down at headquarters um, and headquarters ordered every field division, 56 field divisions to link their database, their informant database to headquarters, John O'Neill said, I won't do it. And he, um, he had a dogfight with headquarters and refused to connect the New York database the FBI headquarters. So here's another great John O'Neill story. When the, uh, the damage survey was done after Hanson was outed and arrested and, and, you know, all the security agencies started looking at the damage that took place. As far as I know, the only FBI office that didn't lose a source or informant was the New York mm-hmm. office. 
can we imagine that it's probably the most important FBI office in, in one, one of them, one of them, I would think Washington field office, maybe, maybe San Francisco, uh, although that's more activity out there with the Chinese, but I, it would be one of the three most important offices. Yes. That's incredible. That's incredible. You, um, man who knew. The man who knew. Yeah. We're going to, we're definitely going to uh, find that movie. I, I, I want to ask, just, yeah. what is it like on nine 11 in Yemen? Oh yeah. Well, that, it's a moment I'll never forget. Uh, my, all right. We had just come in from an early morning uh, uh, run to down to the Southern part of the city. Uh, Sanaa is like a, like something out of the middle ages. We had just driven down to where the the uh, political security office was, where the prison was, to map out our route because we wanted, for safety reasons, we wanted to be able to have multiple routes to take. We came back early in the morning. I'm with my 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 XO, my second guy, and we walk into the hotel and we flip flip on BBC as we watch the second plane hit the towers. Now my our office was six blocks from there. Six blocks. So we see the second plane hit the tower and we said, it's terrorism. You know, the first plane, first they showed that little black hole from the first part. Mm-hmm. It was smoldering. We thought maybe somebody committed suicide. It's a bright, clear day. Maybe somebody in a private plane committed suicide. But then as we're watching, we saw the second one come around and hit. And immediately we knew what happened. So we were we were staying at a, a Sheraton hotel across the street from the embassy. It was the only hotel in town you'd, you'd dare stay at. We were instantly called into the embassy, which was a bit of a fortress in itself. Um, and we gathered in the ambassador's office and the ambassador said to us, initial report, 43,000 people dead in New York. That's the initial information he received. Um, obviously, that was changed later on. But he, he and then he said, could have been. Could have been. Could, could have been. And I'll tell you why it wasn't. Because I worked that case when I came back. So um, then he said, John O'Neill's missing. You know, John O'Neill, who is now employed as head of security for the World Trade Center, is missing. So everybody immediately jumped on their satellite phone or whatever phone they could find and called home to their loved ones. Now, where I lived in New Jersey, you could almost see the southern tip of Manhattan. My wife said she could see the smoke from the World Trade Center site, it was such a clear day. I called her immediately from the satellite phone on the roof and said, "Um, we're gonna lose communication. I'm okay, are you okay? And I will talk to you when I can. And that was it, click. Probably didn't talk to her for days after that. Uh, Because all the cell service in that area just went down. Yes, so uh, then we moved. You want me to keep going? Yeah. This is yeah. very this is very cathartic for me. Right. So are you sure? Tell me if you're done. Enjoying it and our listeners will enjoy it too. All right. Well, so then we were ordered to move um everyone move into the embassy. Uh so we went back to the I went back to the hotel with one of my guys and collected everyone's bags. At this point, imagine we had no idea whether the entire Middle East was going to rise up and attack us. We this could have been part of a concerted plan. You know, there could have been attacks coming from everywhere. So, okay, let me stop for a second and tell you why so many people didn't die in the World Trade Center. It was rush hour. And at that point of the morning, you, you guys familiar with Lower Manhattan, the battery? You know, train just, commuter train from Jersey is just rolling through there nonstop, dropping off 
tens of thousands of, of people. Um, yeah, right. It's under the river, comes in, keeps. So what had happened when the first plane struck the tower, I wish I could remember her name right now because she's a true hero. She was second in charge of the Port Authority or the PATH train or I forget her exact title. When she got the message or the call from her people over Manhattan, they said something just hit the tower. She immediately, without getting any authorization or approval, stopped all the trains, immediately stopped all the trains. So from that point on, no more train, no trains discouraged any more commuters. If they'd been allowed to continue doing that for another 30 minutes, there could have been tens of thousands of people in the basement of that building. Wow. She's a real hero. Yeah, she is a hero. Absolutely. Those kind of split second decisions that, you know, uh, uh, I, I've never been in such a situation, thankfully, but uh, I think, I think we've all been in those situations where uh, you're like, should I do it? Or will I get in trouble with my boss later? I remember I used to have to be a uh, intelligence officer on night duty every, like right. every month or so. And um, I remember something happened and my Colonel totally chewed me out the next day. Uh, why didn't you wake me up? Why didn't you tell me this is important? I said, uh, you know, I didn't think it was that important. I thought you could wait till morning. And somebody right. gave me the best advice at that time. And he said, um, I, I forget exactly the way they said it, but uh, better to wake him up at, you know, what, would, what was it? It was either better to wake him up at night and be wrong than, than be wrong the other way. But also, you know, is he, is he going to have mercy on you the next day uh, for not waking him up? And, and I was like, okay, you know, it's kind of one of those things where, but we've all been in that situation where, you know, oh, do, do I take this? Do I, do I do this on my own without asking permission and get in trouble? What should I do? And, and it's, and it's those kind of in, instances where a regular person just says, you know, I, I'm just going to make this decision. And she just yep. said tens of thousands of people, you know, just because of that, that instant decision. Intuition. She put her whole career, she put her career on the line. She, <laughs> her, the lives of those, those commuters were more important to her than her career. Yeah. Uh, and she and I, have, I have another good story like that. If you have the time. Okay. So um, after I came back from Yemen, which was months and months later, that's a whole nother story. We, you know, a great story about Ali Sufan, you know, conducting the interrogations while we were there. We identified Ali Sufan and his counterpart, and we were part of the team that that took care of him. Within nine nine days of the attack, we had positive identification of every one of the hijackers, and it was positive to the point where we created photo photo spreads. You guys familiar with that photo spread? You know, you go into court and all lookalike pictures and then the witness picks out from from a group of photographs that are very similar, who they they identify the, the subject or the suspect. It's it's classic. We do it in U.S. courts. So we created these photo spreads and um, Ali was able to. Now, the interesting thing was the the two individuals they were interrogating, we found out about the fact that the Yemenis had him in custody after the attack. We were preparing to leave and the Yemenis came to us and said, no, don't go. You want to talk to these guys. They were Al-Qaeda guys and they were Al-Qaeda guys who were in the camp and were bodyguards of bin Laden. Wow. 
Wow. So we began this this week after week interrogation process, but within the, the brilliant, Holly was brilliant, he interrogated, he and Bob, with Bob's help, and Bob was very good too, the NCIS agent, um, he used a rapport building approach. You know, he, he relaxed the suspects. He would bring, we would get them bags of pistachios every night and bring in grape juice. And the, the interesting thing was the, the prisoners were under a uh, news blackout. So they really didn't know what had happened or what had, I'm sure they heard rumors, but they didn't know all the details. So after five or seven days, Ali had them to a point where they're almost like friends. They were bragging about what they did in the camps and they were bragging about how close they were to the shake. Shake loved us and this and that and this and that. So, you know, Ali would say, Hey, are you, what you do in the camps? Oh, we are firearms instructors. Oh yeah. I bet you were really good. You know, you worked that whole angle. So finally the night we put together these photo spreads, Ali t- took these in. And after they warmed them up with the pistachios and the grape juice, throws these down. Hey, you guys know any of these people here? And they're, you know, they're relaxed and they're looking at, oh yeah, I know this guy. Yeah, I've seen this guy. I've seen this guy. How do you know him? Well, he was a foreigner, but the Sheikh liked him very much and used to have him sit at his right arm. And this guy, I remember the Sheikh used to take him in the back of the tent and they were having secret conversations. Well, it turned out that there were three of the hijackers positively identified as being on the flights. We had the, we had the visa information, all the information from the flight manifest. And it was all three. So the fascinating thing about this, and this goes back to probably your earlier question about cases or investigations that were interesting, exciting or not. We had a foolproof identification within nine, maybe 10 days that, that Al Qaeda had, had, Everyone suspected, of course, but, you know, Bush wasn't about to launch an invasion of Afghanistan without proof. We had the proof within 10 days, full proof. I would have taken these photos present at any court in the U.S. and they would have stood up. Because of your ongoing investigation that you already had in Yemen. Yep. On the coal uh, incident. Yeah. Crazy. And so you, you, because of this, you were then pulled into the uh, 9-11 investigation. When I when I returned, so when I get when I get back three months later, we did a lot of other stuff too uh, when we were there. But when I returned, I volunteered for a, a temporary duty assignment to headquarters uh, to be part of the Masali prosecution team. Now Masali was the 19th hijacker, and the guy, you know, he was really a bumbling idiot that they picked up down in Florida. Oh, he had a Minnesota, and, he had a Minnesota connection. I think the flight lessons in Minnesota. Yeah, right? that's him. Yeah, so we were going to prosecute him uh, because he was the only one we had at that time. And um, so uh, my job was to my job was was to listen to every 911 recording that had been collected from that day in Manhattan. And um, also any videos that tourists had turned in and they turned in hundreds. And my job was to pick the worst of the worst when we argued for a death penalty. So the prosecutor said, I don't care. You got to find the worst that's in there um, for jury appeal. Only imagine. So I, uh, so I listened to this one. I think this one you'll, you'll appreciate. It was from flight 93 over Pennsylvania. 
and it was still low enough that somehow one of the passengers was getting cell service. So he's calling his home, which is in Southern Pennsylvania, and he gets his mother on the phone. And he says to his mother, mom, something's going on. I think the plane is being hijacked. There's a big commotion up in the, in the, in the front of the paint in, in a cockpit. And in the background, now the mother is home with her daughter-in-law who's pregnant, very pregnant, sitting on the floor watching what's happening in New York City. First tower already came down. It was about to come down. Close to coming down. The pregnant wife is on the floor crying hysterically. You can hear her in the background. The mother says, hold on, son. Let me call the police. She picks up the local landline calls the local Barney Fife police station, gets, a, uh, gets an officer on the line and, or a dispatcher and said, I think my son's on a hijacked plane. You can hear all this in the recording. And this poor dispatcher has no clue what to do. Um, so the mother, now this, think about this, fellas. Her daughter-in-law is crying hysterically in the living room. She's just seen what's going on. Her son's on a likely hijacked plane. She's got the dispatcher on the phone and she says, son, because he's, he's choking up, he's, he's slurring his words, he's bumbling. You just calm down, son. Just take a deep breath. You just calm down. Just calm down. And in the meantime, she gets her son on. Son, you know, I'm, I'm, tr I'm, I'm trying to get you some information. Just be calm. Just be calm. And you hear the daughter-in-law screaming hysterically. So finally, the dispatcher couldn't, couldn't give her any help. Just, ma'am, we don't know what to say. We don't know what to tell you. Um, uh, they should probably make attempts to secure that aircraft. He doesn't know what to say. So here's the mother, knowing that her son's going to his death. She gets on the phone. She says some very loving, calming words. And she said, now, son, we think you should take back the aircraft. Wow. And the rest is history. You heard that let's roll that that supposed line. Well, it's true. I heard it. I heard the cockpit recording when they were breaking down the door to retake the cockpit. You could hear someone say, let's roll. And then uh, anyway, so there were some heroes Unbelievable. in their own way. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to take your time. Very cathartic. Though. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. I think it's incredible. Was this the highlight of your career? I mean, not in a good way because it was an awful tragedy, but as far as like, do you think it's the most memorable? It's yeah. the most memorable thing that you worked on in your entire career. Oh uh, yeah, without without, I apologize. I don't know how to turn that off. Um, I um, without doubt. Excuse me, I gotta plug my battery. Yeah, without without doubt, it will always be you know um, for my whole family, for everybody, you know, because. My wife was home. I was over there, stuck there for almost three months before I could get back. Three months. And, um, yeah, close to it. Because, because of travel restrictions or because you had to keep working the case? No, we were working the case. Yeah, we were working the case. We are going down every, almost every single night. We were going down to prison and interrogating these guys. Here's another interesting aspect of that interrogation. So these two guys, these two guys were, were interrogating and I apologize because I, I, I don't quite remember their names, but I could dig them out for you. Um, they were boasting about their, 
capability with firearms and how they were firearms instructors. So what we did was we we got a hold of from the from the deputy the the uh, defense attaché at the embassy. So we get a hold of a copy of the Jane Jane Small Arms Manual. No, right? Yeah. So every night. For days, we would take this down and, and and Ollie would say, hey, guys, you know, yeah, do you guys have any of these, you know, and you go page by page. And these 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 two guys would say, oh, yeah, we got all old Soviet stuff, you know, and uh, but they say, yeah, yeah, we got a bunch of these. Well, where are they? Well, they're all up in, you know, Jalalabad. Okay, you got any of these? Yeah, we got some of those. Anybody good with those? Nah, we don't know how to use them. So within, I'm telling you, from an intelligence standpoint, within within a week, we had so much information for the Defense Department. It was incredible. At, at, at the end of this, the the defense attache every night, he'd be waiting for us at the, out in the steps like at 2, 3 in the morning. He'd be waiting for us to come home with our next batch of information. But before the invasion even took place, we were pumping so much military intelligence back home that I can't even imagine anybody doing a better job at collecting something that really wasn't part of our mission. But um, yeah, so that little team uh, between I, I getting a positive ID on the hijackers, um, giving DOD tremendous amounts of information on um, Al-Qaeda, Taliban uh, equipment and, and capability. It was incredible what this little group accomplished during that period. And we came back and when we arrived at Kennedy Airport, uh, my partner and I, um, on the way through the tunnel, the battery tunnel, you could smell it. This is three months later. Yeah, you could smell the burning rubber and the burning steel and everything else. And as we came up, now I've been working there for like 12 years. As you came up out of the battery tunnel, all you saw was this mangled, twisted steel, looked like a the skeleton of a some kind of prehistoric beast. And you smelled the stink. Um, that That's, you know, my first sight of my old office in that area when we came out of the tunnel. It's a mess. So I guess all of this brings me back to that was a time when America was rallied, rallied and came together, you know, and we had a clear cut common enemy. Um, even the FBI I never saw the FBI so responsive for a government agency. They got they became nimble and quick real fast. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a question of did you get that authorized or do you have author just give them you know twenty sets of that level five body armor and get on the plane. When you look back at when you think of today and you look back at then, it's almost hard to believe. Shocking. Say, it's shocking. Dan, do you remember? And you, I mean, we all remember. I mean, everybody had an American flag on their car. Mm-hmm. Every yeah. single person. I mean, somebody was making money selling American flags. I, I mean, you know, <laughs> there were flags. You know what this leads me to. Yeah. Th- you know what this leads me to think of is that I, I think as as humans, um, you know, we tend to coalesce into instinctively smaller tribes. Okay, Ide- yeah. ideological, ethnic, religious, uh, family, depending mm-hmm. on what part of the world you're in. Okay, and, and America especially always had this challenge because America is an idea. It's not a people, there's not a religion, there's not a skin color, 
There's not a family like you you have in certain parts. You know, we here in Israel, we're, we're 80% of us are Jews, okay? And, and we still are constantly fighting. And, and I hate to say it, I think the fact that we have constant physical enemies trying to attack us keeps us from fighting with each other too much. Sure. And in America... I think it's natural. And it's natural. And I think in America, uh, um, the, the lack of actual enemies or... or or immediate enemies, I should say. The, the, you know, the, the, the enemies are at a distance. They're, they're at a distance. They're not going to invade physically, uh, you know, America's shores. And, and so, and you take that with the fact that America, like I said, it, it, the only thing keeping America together all these years was an idea. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I hate to say it, but you need these, like, so you don't need them. They're, they're horrible. But like these, these moments of these 9-11s, this, you know, in our case, mm-hmm. in Israel, you know, the wars that we have every few years, um, to, to remind everyone that we're all together in this and that there's a, there's a different enemy. And, and I'm, not, I'm not in any way calling for a, another, you know, attack on America in any way just to bring Americans together, God forbid. I'm, I'm just saying, like, you don't have that. And so people start to revert, and then you have foreign actors trying to take advantage of it. And, and so, I mean, are you uh, – are you – Hopeful? Are you pessimistic about about America right now, especially? Well, uh, first, first, let me say this. I agree completely with what you just said. I think that what's what's made this a perfect storm is social media. I think we were always a country that, you know, if one if one nefarious actor wanted to create division and set one group against another, it could be done. But now that you have social media and the ability to play with these angers and set set groups against groups, we are, think about this, and again, it brings me back to who benefits the most from this. We are almost a pawn or a plaything in, in an antagonistic country that wants to just screw with us. It's almost easy. Yeah. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not ex- exceedingly hopeful. I'm not, unless... And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, Ben, I interrupted you. But I think until families take back the minds of their children, I think until families start to pay attention to what their children are learning elsewhere and at least step in and say, you know, no, I got to correct that. That's not true. You know, at least give them the other perspective. Until then, I think we're heading down very dark. Path. has america um and i mean i know that's what america's adversaries are trying to do um do, do you they're think doing it. they're doing it uh, and, yeah. and to an extent it's succeeding because you see um both the further you go to the left and the further you go to the right and something i kind right. of you know we've mentioned this on the podcast multiple times the you know when i i like a lot of groups uh um about israel and this and 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 American foreign policy, and I always, I always love this sentence because it's true, but it's just so amusing to watch Americans' reactions that Obama's foreign policy and that kind of the progressive wing, the further you go into the progressive wing of American politics, but also Trump foreign policy it had one major thing in common, that was America shouldn't be involved in foreign conflicts. And, mm-hmm. you know, classic American foreign policy, Clinton, Bush, um, maybe even what we could expect from Biden was that, no, America has a role in the world. Uh, and maybe it's screwed up and maybe it's done things that it shouldn't have done in the past. But overall, since World War II, America has an important 
uh, role in securing the world order that we know now. And you know that that Russia doesn't like it, and the China is trying to replace it with its own kind of world order. Um, and that's you know from a Chinese perspective, it's obviously not a bad thing. But uh, you know, we here in Israel, I, I, we're more comfortable with an American world order, and, and I assume America would like an American world order. But you have like yes. a whole generation of of people, like we talked about, you know, with, that grew up. Uh, uh, learning kind of Marxist, you know, revisionist theory who don't believe in America's mm-hmm. role in the world anymore. And so you have, right. you know, you, you have an America that doesn't believe in its own role in the world. They, they, they don't understand. They don't believe they're not convinced, you know, that America should be playing that role in the world that it used to play that a lot of countries came to expect and rely on. And you have now countries actively trying to supersede this and, um, you know, here we're trying to, it worries us, but we're trying to deal with it at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the new accord with the UAE and, and, and kind of these kind of things are, are actually a result of this. Um, they're a result mm-hmm. of a bunch of countries who used to rely on American power, who are threatened by Iran, who are now saying, okay, we got to work together now. Um, yeah. America's not going to be here physically, at least. America might supply arms and, and funding, et cetera. Right, um, and then they're saying, "Who okay? If America is not in this region, who who is in this region that's not going anywhere? They can." It's us, and it's and it's us. But, uh, uh, but it, it wasn't supposed to be that way. Wow. Um, but here, I mean, but here it is. Here it is. Is there anything that can save the situation? What would it take? By the way, also, are you hopeful with uh, you know Biden uh, as kind of a centrist type figure? Um. I think I'm going to take a no comment on that. I live, I live two miles from, I, I live two miles from him and he went to the same college as yeah, I. And, yeah. And I've, and I've watched his career for many, many, many years. Um, my, my concern is that his health uh, among other things and that the person that his, his second mm-hmm. came in, in the democratic primaries way down way down the ladder. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes a question of who's really pulling the strings. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, the, the, I think the media has done a shocking good job at, at concealing Joe Biden's uh, frailty. Oh, you did not take that sense in the direction I thought you were going to. <laughs> no, they, they concealed his frailty um, shockingly. Um, without without hesitation so um me personally i have grave doubts that he'll have the the stamina to do this for very long and then it becomes kamala and whoever she's beholding beholden to interesting 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 do you have faith in the american people it's shaken i i think i think that benny i think that um i Hey, up 2001, we were so united, right? And um, and in the subse- uh, subsequent uh, war against terrorism, we were very united. This whole thing has developed in a relatively this this disunity has developed in a relatively short period of time. It's not the America I knew ten years ago. No, and I, and I would I would add, I mean. It, Dan and I have the unique perspective, and as do you, by the way, because you spent a lot of time abroad. People that have spent a lot of time apart from America have a certain perspective of what's going on in America that if you're there constantly, you can't have. 
And, you know, I, I grew up and then I left and came here at a very, at a very young age, relatively speaking. Um, and, and so did you, Dan. Um, and, you know, when you go back to your memories of, of growing up, of your childhood, of, of your life, it's, it's a different country in yes. so many regards. And it's so disappointing yes. to me because you build your, not only your worldview, but your the stability of that worldview based on something that is not there right now. Mm-hmm. And it's deeply unst- un- un- unsettling. And I mean, the whole world has changed. We can't, we can't just say that about America. Yes. Yeah. But, but, but even here's changed. Uh, Israel, Israel's today is not the same Israel. It was sure. even a decade. Right. It's like the contrary. I don't have the perspective of being away from here to look at Israel. True. From the outside. Yeah. But, but I would have thought at least that this COVID situation would have, Maybe there was a time it's at the an beginning enemy. at the it's beginning of COVID enemy. where I thought that people would rally a little bit like they did at the beginning of, of you know, after 9-11 and it never happened. I think here we did. In America, you never had the rally around the flag with COVID. And in Israel, at least on the fr- we were, by the way, I don't know if you're familiar here. Uh, I don't know why you would be. Um, we we got out of the, we went lockdown, an almost total lockdown fast we were considered yeah. the first country to quote unquote tackle the situation. We were one of the first to come out and, and go, but not full semblance of normal life, but, but something close to it. And then we went back into a half lockdown and now we're starting yeah. to come back out of it again. And the first time I noticed there was definitely a rally around the flag. And now the second time, there's so much cynicism involved. And in America, you had the polarization around COVID from the beginning. I mean, it's yeah, it's an invisible enemy. You know, how do you fight this invisible enemy? And is is it a conspiracy? Is it not? Is it is it my right to wear a mask, or can the government tell me to wear a mask? And all these questions you're not really seeing in other parts of the world. I'm not sure what. Well, yeah, and you you have 50 50 states, each run by um, you know a governor who. You could be Republican or Democrat, and you've got, yeah, it's 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 getting toxic. I mean, people, you have half of the country terrified. I mean, I drive down the road and I'll see people alone in a car with their mask on. <laughs> yeah, I see that. Here. I see see it all the time. And then you'll have you you know you go into a store and of course you wear your mask and people walk way around you like you're you know uh, you know an infection and you're horrible. And then you've got small businesses that are just dying. You know, these poor people are, you know, they're, they're dying and retail, uh, retail stores, you know, they're dying. So you get, but you've got certain protective in protected industries that are going to do and are doing really well, such as the people who sell drugs the people, um, you know, you've got certain companies, they're all doing fine. Uh, but then you've got, so you've got this part of, part of our economy is, is, is dying. And another part is just take the pensioners. I, I know many pensioners that have a nice pension to them. This isn't much different than what their life is normally like. Life has not changed that much. They're not, they're not pensioners, but their life hasn't changed that much, for example. Right. Right. So you've got a whole swath of people and the wealthy and the pensioners who they're like, so what's a big deal? You know, I've got this second house up in the mountains and when I get bored, I'll go up there. And then you've got the rest of us who are trying to just figure out how to get it to next week. You know, so it's a a strange situation. 
on, on that very positive <laughs> note. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not very positive right now myself. Although, when the vaccine comes out, watch and see what happens. Yeah, right. I'm curious. I'm, I'm very curious from, uh, yeah, to see what happened the vaccine, and I can't wait to see what happens when the um, instant testing or near instant testing comes out. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's good in, there's good news on the vaccine. There's at least two companies that say it's 95 percent effective. Percent effective. Sure. Yep. Unbelievable. High hopes. Well, this has been yeah. fascinating. I have a feeling that we can talk to you for ten hours. Um, we didn't even probably scratch the surface on, on some of uh, the issues that we could talk about. Um, but uh, we didn't even mention the name of the book at the That's beginning. Right. Tell, tell us about your book. Uh, Where and, can people um, buy it? Well, my, the book is, I guess you can get it on Amazon. It's called Endless Enemies Inside FBI Counterterrorism. Yep. And it's a co- co-authored with Lillian Weiss, who was um, a great co-author to work with. Endless Enemies. And it's, it's, it was my, uh, after 9-11, before retirement, I began to write this thing because I thought there were a number of things that needed to be out in the open, some truths that needed to be told. Um, and then I think certain things were misrepresented um, in the early days after 9-11. You know, fingers were pointed and accusations were made that weren't accurate. So... Fantastic. So that's available on Amazon. We're going to put it on our website with the show notes uh, for, for this episode and people can order it. And uh, your company, uh, First Watch Global, is a consultancy on security issues? Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, we are. We've, uh, we're comprised mainly of um, retired FBI crisis management experts, um, some of the best in the country. Um, and uh, yeah, we've got a We've got a great website, explains it all. And uh, thank you for that plug. It yep. really is a great website, I have to say. I, I, I oh, thank you. Everybody's bios, and it's just everyone, you know, one's more interesting than the next, and, and you really have a great team. Uh, well, thank you. I hope thank they're you, all doing well during this time as well. We're hanging in there. <laughs> We're hanging in there. We're doing one well. Those, thank you. One of those industries where uh, I, I wish – not you personally, but I wish you guys were out of a job because we wouldn't need security experts. But sadly, uh, we definitely need security experts uh, today as much as ever. Um, Thank you. And so um, if anybody needs security consulting, First Watch Global, we recommend the book um, filled with your insights and your stories. And we thank you. Uh, We thank you for your time and for sharing with us incredible experiences and your incredible insights. Um, This has been fascinating for us. I hope you had a good time also. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ray, for uh, for everything. My pleasure, fellas. Thank you for listening. And Ray, I, I, owe, I, you a, I, I owe you a bottle of bourbon. I'm going to follow up with an email, get your address. <laughs> we'll get that sent out to you. Uh, okay, or have your mom send it over. Do that too. Can do that. <laughs> I'll, 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 it'll be faster if I do it. I'll just do it. With, with, okay. With, okay. It'll be much faster. It'll get delivered. It'll be nice. And, and, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. I'll hold you to it. You take care, guys. Thanks. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye now. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.